Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard, back for our first regular show in 2017. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope you had a great holiday and an amazing New Year. I know I did. I traveled with my boys through Colorado, Nebraska, Wyoming, South Dakota, visited Mount Rushmore. It was just a really special time. As always, as you know, I just want to tell you guys so much. Thank you so much for everything. Amazing. I can't thank you enough. What you've done for this podcast has been incredible. And what we have coming for you in the next few months from guests like one of the Los Angeles Lakers owners, Jeannie Buss, to Walter Latham, who put together the original Kings of Comedy to Ted Sarandos, the president of Netflix. You're in for some great shows coming up and very, very excited about what the year has to offer. But as always, I'm more excited because I'm sitting across from one of the most amazing comedians that I've ever met in my entire life. Truly extraordinary, and I'm talking about Christopher Titus. I've known Chris my whole life, and one of the things I think when I look at him is that we're all born into lives that we don't know what they're going to be. Some of us are fortunate enough to be born into situations where they're with model families and they have wonderful support systems. And then other people are born into situations like Christopher Titus where everything is lined up against you from the moment you're born. And the chances of you getting out and being a healthy and productive member of society are next to impossible. I always think to myself how hard it is to be successful in any business. So difficult, even if you're from an amazing family, even if you have everything working for you. And when you don't have everything working for you, 
I have enormous respect for those people who figured out a way to take their pain and turn it into something that makes them driven and productive and really, really powerful. And Christopher Titus is an example of that. And Christopher Titus is that old expression that your grandparents used to say, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Chris channeled all the unbelievable things that happened in his life, which I don't even want to talk about here because I know that we're going to get into it in the podcast. But suffice to say, this man has gone through hell and back in his life. Twelve years into his career, he decided he was going to use all the stories that you can't even believe anybody could possibly go through and create comedy out of tragedy. And he did that, and he put pen to paper, and he worked hard writing and creating and performing over and over and over again until he created an extraordinary show called Norman Rockwell is Bleeding. And that, after all the years of pounding the pavements of stand-up, broke open the doors for him to get his own television show, Titus, to be an executive producer, and to be able to create unbelievable television that was so smart and so dark, yet so unique, and a kind of television show that was so original that I can't even recall another television show even having the same tone. It was so powerful, and if you have never seen Titus, you need to figure out a way to see it. But the point I'm trying to make here is that no matter how difficult things are in your life, just work hard and work on the things that you have to work on that focus in on the things you've been through in your life. If you are an artist, write about your life. Write about the things that are happening with you or that have happened with you. Those are the things that are going to be the most authentic. Those are the things that are going to be the things that speak to you. And chances are there's many, many other millions of people out there, believe it or not, who've been through what you've been through. And when I look at Christopher Titus, I see somebody who has beat all the odds, like many of you out there have many odds against you. And he did it by reaching deep inside himself and using the things that happened in his life for good, not evil. And that's why if you're able to do these kind of things that he's done in his life, you'll definitely have the chance of having the kind of career that he has. And here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. It's 2017, and I am really, really happy this podcast is going to shake you up, and it's going to blow you away because I'm sitting across from Christopher Titus, who I consider to be the closest 
comedian to the late George Carlin working today, and I don't say that lightly. And I think if there was only one other comic I would put in that category that's working today, probably Jim Jeffries. So you're in for a real treat. And so without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest. So get some popcorn, get some no-dose, fall asleep, and set the alarm for four minutes from now. <laughs> he was once called TV's most original comic voice since Seinfeld. Christopher Titus is known for comedy that's part rant, part confession, part therapy, in my opinion, part commencement address. <laughs> always funny. <laughs> Titus was born in Castro Valley. California in 1964. His parents divorced when he was a young child, and he was raised largely by his father, Ken. You gotta put the age? You gotta put my age? It's show business. Don't put my age. I will be commenting on the intro. Keep going. Christopher Titus is 35 years old. <laughs> Thank you. He celebrates his birthday. Doesn't every, matter what I am. I play 35. That's all that matters. Every three years. <laughs> He looks fantastic, by the way. He could get in the hurricane and his hair would never move. Oh, wow. And I moisturize. He's got the stuff in his hair. You could actually run your fingers through his hair and your hands would bleed. <laughs> So, his parents divorced when he was young. Why do you have to say they're divorced? <laughs> I mean, Christ, say they're married. I'm sorry. His father, Ken, who had several relationships during his upbringing that provided comedic material for his routines. Six divorces, not several relationships. We've all had several relationships. <laughs> I was trying to go the other way and not say the divorces. Keep going. Just keep going. I would just come and you continue on. A half of a baker's dozen minus one of <laughs> yes. divorces, while his mother's manic depression and schizophrenia and alcohol alcoholism also served as future source material. <laughs> Boy, I like a heartless prick. His mother was mentally ill, had an alcoholic problem, and killed herself. And he uses that to mine the comic depth. <laughs> uh, I'm an evil human. Keep reading. Titus bounced between living with his grandparents, his father, and then ran away to live in his mother's garage for a short time. I was actually kidnapped by my mom and left at my grandparents. My dad had to kidnap me back. Keep going. In mining comic gold. <laughs> Again, from kidnapping and mental illness and shootings, Titus is mine comic gold. In 1986. Why you gotta mention years? <laughs> His mother killed her. I can't even do this. Shot and killed. His third husband, she killed him. He was the jerk I used to do. He was, he was, the guy was half O.J. Simpson and half O.J. Simpson. <laughs> just an evil dude. I know the guy who owns the Bronco. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh, that's cool. He mines comic gold for me. <laughs> he does, as we all do from our tragedy. <laughs> the tragedy is reading this intro. <laughs> Titus struggled with alcohol and drugs during adolescence until one day while intoxicated had a near-death experience falling into a bonfire at a beach party. Yeah, it'd be he, a lot weirder if he was one day totally sober he fell into a bonfire. <laughs> Your head. I got they had to clear that up. Titus considered this moment his epiphany and began to turn his life around and get into comedy. In 85, he began performing at open mic comedy clubs throughout San Francisco, and it wasn't long before before Titus was tapped open for very popular singers, including Kenny Loggins and Michael Bolton. <laughs> Why you gotta say Michael Bolton? I'm sorry. I can live with Loggins. We were told actually Bolton's comedy. I was actually told not to look him in the face. I was actually told actually Michael Bolton to not look him in the face. It wasn't art. I wasn't looking like. I wasn't like where's he at? I know it's, it's an industry standard. So I'm sure he's an amazing artist who's incredible. And and you know, when he sings other people's songs, go. <laughs> 
<laughs> Do you know any comedians that are famous for doing other people's routines and people are happy about it? No, I know, but it's, a, it's the only thing you can't do covers, you know, it's, and it seems like that's the way it may go one day. You know, I mean, see, still his reputation still hangs around. I actually saw Mencia do someone else's joke in front of me one night recently in the last two years. And I called the guy the next day just to tell him it was DL. He did, I saw him. I was in Vegas. I had to go to the, the Dirty at 1230 show. Why do you stir up the controversy? Why can't you just let it die? Because it's a fucking artist because we're doing comedy. Here's the thing about comedy. And this is why I have I have a I have a reputation in some circles as being a pain in the ass. Creating comedy out of nothing. It, it's one of the few things where like my daughter's a singer and she's actually writing songs now and we need a band. We know that comedy is the only thing you come up out of nothing and then get on stage with nothing and create a world from nothing. And that's fucking hard. And the best guys that do it, Jim Jeffries is one, you know, Louis C.K., the best guys that do it, do it in a way that looks like they're making it up as they go. It's so fucking hard. And the guys that are great at it are, 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 are so good that you, you don't even know. And that some douchebag thinks that it's okay to walk in and take someone else's art and get on stage and get paid for stealing someone is theft flat out. So uh, it bothers me when someone goes, well, you got to talk shit because I saw the guy do it in front of me. I was in Vegas. We had a thing called the Dirty at 1230. Uh, and it was one of those things where the club owner goes, hey, because uh, I was a headline at this at the South Point. He goes, hey, you going to do the, the midnight show? And I went, nah, man, I'm tired. I got to go. And he goes, okay, so the midnight show, it's really 1230. So go over there. You can go over there at 1230. They'll put you on the list wherever you want to go. I said, no, I'm probably going to go to the room. And this, this is the hotel guy. And he goes, he goes, so you're going to do it though, right? And I realize it's Vegas. Oh, I'm doing the show. I mean, at one point I had said no four times. And I, oh, oh, I, oh, I'm doing the show. Yeah. He was very cool about it. So I go over there, Carlos. And, and again, another reason I don't look, life is too short to have filters. I think, I, I think I do need to develop my diplomacy, but life is too short to not call people on their bullshit. Me being included, by the way. And I'll have to hopefully call myself on it. Um, uh, so I, I walk over there and Carlos walks up to me and, he, and I go, hey man, and I don't know Carlos from anybody, I don't know him, I'll just tell you what happened and I go, hey, how's it going, man, and he, he said doing alright, what do you have to, I said, I said, how's everything going with the stealing thing, you know, that's what I just said to him, he goes, what and I go, the stealing thing, he goes, oh man, I didn't steal I go, dude, I go, I sat and watched you do, watched you do Cosby's bit, I watched you do it I see, it was the bit where he did the football bit, football go, bit where he slams the football down and says, hi mom, hi mom, yes he does it, he goes, oh, that was arrogance and, I, and I'm thinking, okay, good, finally, someone had some insight maybe someone went to a meeting that's what i thought he goes he goes so it was we filmed it originally and then he goes we cut it out of the special release but when it came out on dvd they put it back in man he goes we we're so arrogant to put it back in he didn't say it was wrong to do the to take cosby's bit flat out he said it was wrong to put it back in so i just kind of went okay whatever and I, I i go i go do my show and he gets up and does a show and i see him do this joke and i'm like huh that's funny and then i was driving home from vegas i'm not gonna tell you the joke i'm driving home from vegas and i'm listen to Comedy Central Radio or whatever it was on, on Raw Dog uh, and D.L. Hughley comes on and literally does the bit and I'm like and I know I got D.L.'s number I said D.L. I, I said is that your bit he goes yeah he, he's doing it I said I just saw Carlos do lesson he goes thanks man clicked, you know, D.L.'s so cool thanks man so that's what happened I, do, I believe that anybody who who will take someone else's art or, or anything is just it's just it's fucked up it's just fucked it's fucked up it's fucked and comics and, the, and there's no organization that we can go to as comics except for us there's no place where we can go and go uh, I'd like to I'd like to speak to the barrister regarding this man stealing my material it doesn't happen we have to go to, we have to track it down and we need to really police it that's all I'm saying in music 
so many of the greatest songs in the world are sung over and over again by other people. But in comedy, if you were to go on stage and say, listen, I'd like to do this next homage to George Carlin, you'd be assassinated as a comedian. Music, I can play music. I, I, I can play guitar. I've actually, I'm producing my daughter's stuff, just the, the demos to give to a real producer, but I'm actually, I can, I, you can, I, it, guitar playing is a, is a craft, singing, you can be trained in that. To get people to laugh out loud, in a, listen, comic, comics are delusional. It's a mental illness. To be a stand-up comedian, you have to be mentally ill. You have to actually walk into a room and believe that you are the smartest, funniest, most charismatic human being to a room full of strangers who don't know you. That's how insane you have to be as a comic. It's literally, it's beyond Trumpism. It's actually a little beyond Trump. You have to believe that you're going to be by far the most charismatic, badass human in the room. Uh, please welcome Christopher Titus. I'm going to now run these people. That's it. Men that's serial killer mental illness. And that's what you have to be as a comic. And to and the people that are great at it, again, Louis, Patton, th there's guys that I look up to that I can't wait for their next thing. Um, uh, and and those guys are, there. It's, it's fucking, not only is it priceless, but it's magic, but people don't get that. It's fucking magic. Sometimes I don't know why something's getting a laugh. I'll write it, it comes out of my brain, I'll put it down, and I'll be doing it, and I, and I actually write it going, there's no way this is gonna work. And then I'll get on stage, and for whatever reason, fourth time in, you know, if it's a hard th concept to like arm the children, it was a hard concept. Arm the children, uh, we went through a thing where uh, we were still going through it, it happened today, there's another shooting today at the airport in, in Hollywood, Florida. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to go after, I wrote a bit, the, the gun thing has to be dealt with, so I wrote this bit called Arm the Children, because they, they wanted to arm teachers, and they wanted to arm, <laughs> they kept saying that all the teachers should have guns, and everybody in, in public place should have guns, so I, I thought it was so ridiculous, I wrote this bit called Arm the Children, where I basically proved that by arming the children, making children carry guns all the time, we can fix every problem in society. Now, I'm doing the bit, and I get the audience to start chanting, arm the children at one point. I go, give it to me, arm the children, and I do run through this whole bit where I prove that we can fix all society's ills if we can just simply arm the children. And at the end, I go, give it to me one more time. And I put my hand over my head and I go, and they go, arm the children. And I keep my hand up I like Hitler. And I go, do you see how this can get out of hand? Do you see how Hitler got started? And they all go, and the gun people were like, motherfucker, they were so mad. And the anti-gun people were like, finally, thank God, finally. So so you have to you have to do that. And so to make that bit funny, if someone stole that bit, that took a long time to make right. You know, music is music. Music is great. The best, you know, Nils Lofgren is a friend, one of the best musicians in the world. Beyond craft, he's an artist. You know, Springsteen. But comics, man, to come up with a concept that is so crazy Easy. And you can go, I can go through every comic that we, that I've listed, you know, Carl, to come uh, just just Carlin's bit about my stuff. There's a, there's another level beyond just putting four chords together and putting some lyrics down about love. There's something beyond it that 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 transcends that. And I hate fucking talking about because makes comedy. Let's make comedy not funny. Let's let Titus fucking ramble about fucking comedy. So you think sympathy for the devil is just four chords and somebody putting something together? Now now so I want to get my ass kicked. So yes, I think sympathy for the devil was tossed off in a, in a session because Keith Richards was hammered. No, of course there's all songs, but uh, on the Radio, I was listening to U2. I, I drove home from my, uh, Northern California yesterday. It's like a seven-hour drive, and all I did was play U2. And U2 continues to... They, there's 
some bands that just transcend. They go to another level, but you have to be inspired to do that. But comics have to be inspired all the time. That being said, there's a thousand guys out there that can talk about their penises and the audience will laugh. But the, I don't consider, I, I honestly don't consider those guys, with a few exceptions, uh, David Tell. There's certain guys that are, whenever a comic, guy, a young guy go, hey, watch my set. And I'll go, okay, I'll sit in the back and watch a set. And he, he talks about his, his blowjobs and, and anal raping his girlfriend. And he'll get a stage and he'll go, what do you think? And I go, well, I said, y- you're horrible. <laughs> and they'll go, what do you mean? Because, you know, I, I'll, do, I'll, do, I'll do what Dana Carvey said to me. I asked Dana Carvey one time years ago. I said, watch my set. And Dana Carvey's very, and he said, okay, I'm going to watch your set. He goes, before you do this, though, here's what I want you to do. I was like literally 19 or 21 at the time. He goes, I want you to, I want to ask him before I watch your set, do you want to hear what I really think or do you want me to tell you you're good so you can continue on? And I go, no, because I was raised with my dad. My dad was just, you're a fucking retard. I got a B. It's not an A. I, mean, my, I, I'm used, I was used to the truth. I said, no, give me the truth. He said, okay. I'll never forget it. I get off stage and he goes, Dana taught me one of the most important things about performing live stand-up comedy. He said, uh, he gets off stage, he goes, he goes, number one, be funny. He, uh, and I said, thank you. And I go, you bullshitting me? He goes, no, you said you don't funny. He goes, number two, you don't look at the audience. He goes, you could be a lot funnier. But he, he goes, yes, I do. He goes, no, you don't. You look near the audience. He goes, you're looking at the back wall of the club the whole time. I didn't see you look anybody in the face. Not once. And he goes, he goes, let me tell you how to do this. I want you, you, do, I want you to pick one person and you do the setup right to their face. And then you do the punchline to the room. Then you pick another person and do the next setup to their face, punchline to the room. And he goes, what will happen is, he says, what happens is that person is all of a sudden your best friend. The three people around him wish they were him, so they want to be your best friend. And he, he, I'll never forget this. Dana, I, Dana did my benefit a couple years ago and I brought this up and he goes, I don't remember saying that. And I go, I will never forget it. And I've told comics across this country, and he just and he goes also you're too goofy. He goes you're too goofy. He goes you're you're, you're just a goofball on stage. And, and that's Dana saying it. And he goes you you a little more substance. Work on your writing. And he was honest. So I'm honest. When a comic says what do you think, and I'm honest. But I will ask him. Do you want me to be honest? Or want me to tell you you're good. He, I'm honest. And I said you know unless you're Dave Attell funny with dirty. Jim Norton funny. Unless you're Dave Attell funny, where you're taking these crazy right turns that that aren't just offensive, but they're surprising, then, then I, go, but I go, if you're as funny as Dave Attell, go for dirty. If you're that funny. If you're not, why are you wasting your fucking time? There's 5,000 guys that are doing the same fucking dick joke. Why are you doing it? One of my biggest pieces of advice to anybody is don't ask anybody to come see you. When you're doing the right thing, they will find you and chase you. Leno said, uh, Leno years ago, this came through Kevin and Rooney. He said, um, Kevin Rooney, great stand up comedian, great writer. He said to me, he said, we were working together. This is when he was still doing stand up. And I was, again, I was, just, I got to remember, I don't have, uh, Chris Hardwick said to me, he goes, you don't have a click. He goes, you don't hang out with the alternative guys. You don't hang with the older guys, you know, with the road dogs. And I said, I, because I, I was 19 when I started. I go, all the other guys were too old, and the new guys behind me were behind me. So I'm like this weird, like this, like there's, there was, there's no, Isn't there, uh, like one, person who started the same week as you. We had Kevin Pollock and Bobby Slate on one end and then we had, well, Jake Johansson and John Ross, Jake Johansson, so me and Jake know each other but I was also, they were also four or five years older than I was. So I was, and I was 19 and psychotic. Like, I'm bad now but imagine me at 19. I was not, I was like, Wee! I was just out of control. Those guys, those guys were great. Goldthwaite's an uh, interesting thing. Goldthwaite came from Boston and, and I was starting in San Francisco and he did a club called The Other Cafe. It was like, it was like, a th- it was, the window was, the, the, the stage was up against the window 
in the streets. So like it was this bizarre. Goldthwait called it a, a people aquarium years ago. This is again, remember this is in the '80s, and people would just walk by while you were on stage with your back, and, and it, the crowds were always phenomenal, willing to let you go and do what you want to do. And Goldthwait, they let me do a couple of those nights, and I never, I was, I. Goldthwait, I don't know if he does it anymore, but Goldthwait's a genius. You know, Goldthwait's one of those guys who go, oh, he just yells. I go, oh, no, he doesn't. I go, I go, if Goldthwait doesn't have to do that voice, I go, look at his material. You know, his material, he could get up as any stand-up in the world, do the exact same jokes, and it would still be funny. You know, he wasn't the guy that he never got by on that yelling. So one night, uh, I'm backstage, and I go talk to him. I go, thanks for letting me do the show. And he's, he was, he's, he's still really young, and he, he goes, oh, no problem. And he goes, I got to get ready. And, and this is when he used to put the shit in his hair, and it would take him like 20 minutes. And Goldthwait, talk about an acting moment, man. And Goldthwait transformed into that dude. He got faster and faster later, but at the beginning, holy shit, it took him like 20, and it was crazy to watch. And he'd be you know, in, in, in the back room, and it was, it was amazing. Goldthwait was, a, Goldthwait was a inspiration in a lot of ways, not for what I do, but just to, just, just to show you. Goldthwait was great when he started because it showed you how far you could go. I mean, I started doing characters on stage in San Francisco and stuff. I did this Russian guy who came to America, and Reagan was president at the time, and, 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 and basically this Russian guy was just freaked out about America and, and why the Mormons had bought Playboy magazine. He came to America just so he could buy Playboy because he can't get in. It was just, it was anyway. But a lot of those San Francisco guys were great, just really inspiring. And Joe was amazing. That character he did, Dexter, yeah. holy shit. Dexter Madison. Holy shit, was that funny. I have so many things to ask you, but I think the biggest thing I want to ask you about this comedy police thing. Do you think Carlos has been punished too much, too little, or exactly as he should have been punished? Well, I, you know, I think I think once South Park takes it on, once South Park decimates you, I think that's pretty much it. But that's literally like the death penalty. When the, South Park, I, I believe, is the moral compass of our country. I really do. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not. I, you think I'm joking, but I am not. You can watch South Park is so weirdly brilliant in the sense that they will take some but the queefing episode, which was basically kind of a dissertation on misogyny and how women don't have the same rights as men, which is it's, it's and it always like at one point you just for the dumb people who are never going to get that they're like yeah queefing woo for the smart people like holy shit how did they how did they offend me to this point and then take me to them i'm like i agree with you 100 they're brilliant so when they went after carlos um with that fish sticks uh thing i i remember i remember just nodding and go and i turned to my wife and i go he's fucked i go i guess south park takes you on you're fucked you're just fucked <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was I think that was it punishment and, and, and had a guy had he had anybody been contrite about it and said you know I, I shouldn't do that I won't do it again but even up to the point when I called him on it in front of him and he said and he had the balls to go yeah I was arrogant he wasn't arrogant because he stole the bit he was arrogant because they, 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 they put it on the DVD he it didn't, wasn't that he stole it here's the guy's mindset here's a psychopath's mindset and again he's a comic so I totally understand it he put it on the DVD and was mad that they were arrogant to do that and not that he stole the bit. And then he got up that night and did a fucking joke from DL. So so after all of that Rogan shit, after all the, like the clubs hate him, after South Park nationally, a comedy center went after him, the fucking guy still does it. So in your opinion, why do you think someone steals? Now, I just want to say this. Why does a millionaire steal if he wants to create new material all he has to do is bring in some writers for $500 here and $500 there right. and put some stuff together people don't realize it on the outside but the academy awards has 1725 writers i know comedians who make their living writing for comedians and nobody knows it there's guys that use help yeah i, I think i think guys don't 
I think there's an I think there's an arrogance in it. I don't need any help writing. I mean, I, I would I would I, that would. Uh, so if Carlos Mencia came out for ten years and was doing original, unique stuff that nobody could point to, right? He'd get everything back that he had. Why would he? do that again what's the point habit I think habit if you do it for so long it's just your habit and the thing about Carlos is that and here's the other side of Carlos by the way because I've trashed him and I'm sure this is going to get back to me one day um because uh, you know that's what happens with my career I saw talk some shit next thing I know <laughs> next thing I know I'm, I'm working it doesn't matter the point is this Carlos uh the thing about Carlos is I watched him that night and would do it, and he is a fucking amazing performer. Like, I really got it watching him. I was watching him going, holy shit, this guy is he's, he's, an, he's, he's amazing. Like, on stage, what he does on stage, amazing. His attitude, his passion, what he brings to it. The problem is he's using the passion for shit he didn't write in some cases. Now, does he, does he steal everything? No. But that's not the point. You can't – comedy's not – you can't – like, Springsteen goes out and does 35 songs of his own. Then he does one cover. That's okay. You can't do 35 bits of your own as a comic and then do one cover of Louis C.K.'s bit and thinking you're still cool. There's some, there is no room in comedy for it, you know, because to get – listen, listen, and this is this – is, I hate talking about – you're making me not funny, and I don't like it. <laughs> comedy is – to, to elicit laughter from people Laughter you can't fake it If you fake laughter It basically causes a tumor on your soul So to get people to really laugh in a room To have it an, an honest authentic reaction Is priceless It's fucking magic Laughter is accidental So for people who have mastered it To get on stage and make that happen To a room full of people Is, is fucking priceless And people, it, cures, it, it creates endorphins which, cures, which helps cure cancer Which changes your mood You can have a sh- I've had people so many times And go dude I had a shitty day Thank you Comics do something different You know And I believe I seriously believe that So if that comic does that priceless piece And some other asshole steals it And does it to another audience You could say well he's doing good work Because he's making them laugh too No Come up with your own shit Or get the fuck out I, I, Listen I'm a DF student I'm a dumb guy The only thing that ever made me smart in life is comedy Because I had to learn what I had to do to write it Okay So, so I was a fuck up Total fuck up loser Who had no No possibility in life Stand up comedy gave me the possibility I have now done seven 90-minute specials that I'm writing my eighth right now. And I will tell you this. The pain. I'm writing this new one about – it's going to be – I'm running for president in 2017 because I figured – because this guy ain't going to last that long. He's dropping a deuce. <laughs> he's dropping a deuce. He, he's already – we haven't, he's not even there yet. He's already backed out on everything he said, which pisses me off. It makes me mad that all the – I didn't vote for him. But everybody who did, you know what makes me really mad? Those people come to my shows. This guy's motherfucked him across the board already. All across the board. You're going to build a wall. You know, and we'll just build a wall. Let's really build it. But now we're going to pay for it. That was happened today. <laughs> we're going to pay for the wall. Mexico's not paying for it. We'll pay. We'll send him a bill. Really? You're going to send him an invoice for the wall? <laughs> and I say, let's go for it. Build the wall. You know, then we'll, we'll win. We'll, at the Olympics, we'll get the golden handball every year. <laughs> we're, we're, now, we are going to be in the finals with Mexico every year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're very good at handball now and, and, and much better at leaning. We, we lean well now. We have a wall to lean on looking cool. I suppose you can't climb over the wall. Yeah. yeah. We're also going to build giant corks for the tunnels, too. That's another thing. Giant wall, giant corks. That's next. I'm not going back to the stealing, but the day that George Bush first said that we're going to build a wall, there were three Latino comedians that night yeah. that did the same joke, bit. Right. Do you know what the joke was? Yes. Yeah. Who are they going to get to build the wall? And the thing about that joke, that's not the joke.
see, like when that happened, because like to, to me, calling calling someone stealing is a big deal, big fucking deal. You better have some fucking evidence. That joke wasn't the joke that put me over the top. In fact, I gave Carlos a pass on their joke because I heard seven guys at open mics do it. When I saw the Cosby bit, now I'm a Cosby, I'm a huge Cosby fan, pre-rapey Cosby. I'm a, I, I'm a huge, not anymore. Uh, I, when I saw the, the football bit, that's when I went, that's, you didn't just take a joke. You didn't come up with a joke that's possible. You took the whole fucking bit. Now you started in San Francisco. Right. And do you think that you can get away with doing somebody's bid once or twice when you're huggable and lovable and you're an acting talent? like Robin Williams you know uh, man Robin's such a weird case because reality without reality what a concept I wouldn't even started stand up without because reality what a concept and I it was the thing that opened me up that realized oh you can do voices and impressions and tell stories and do craziness and that was the first time I thought I could really be a stand-up comic. So he inspired you, but yes. in San Francisco, you're well aware of the stories where he would actually go up to comedians and write out a check and say, "I'm sorry." He bought some. He bought. He bought. I think he bought Carla Bo a house. Like there's some stuff he did. I remember. I remember one of the Oscars he hosted. Um, Steve Pearl I was talking to Stephen Pearl. It was very funny, crazy. And the, and and Stephen Pearl said, that, "Yeah, yeah, he did. He did about 15 or something of my jokes on the Oscars." And then he wrote. He wrote. He wrote Steve a very large check. Is what Steve said. He didn't tell me how much, but he said. So so here's the thing. Robin also was a fucking genius. At one point, someone called him on, hey, that's a bit about my dad. And Robin was like, fuck you. That's a bit about my dad. So, the, you know, I, I wrote that. So, But when you didn't, you know, I, I, you know, yeah, I don't give Robin a pass. A lot of comics really hate I, I don't, But I, I mean, I do give Robin a pass on certain things because the other side of him, he was a fucking, he's a genius. And he was doing a stream of consciousness. Yeah, but that's also a bullshit excuse. So I can't be rap, riffing like I just riffed. And then, yeah, it's, it wasn't cool. But at least he, he, he didn't. At least, his, at least he wasn't arrogant enough to go, yeah, I did it. And, you know, my arrogance was I did it on TV. You know, he, at least he went, yeah, fuck. And I wrote a guy a check. You know, the, the only, the only, I think the only thing, talk about paying your dues. You, you take out a check and you write a guy a check for 10 grand because you did something on, on Letterman. Okay. You know, and then the, that comic goes, that comic goes, well, I can eat for three or four months now and I got to write some new material. At least he bought the material that at the end now, maybe it should have been purchased, then do not do, then purchase. That's different. Um, let's say he test drove the material and then he walked in and signed the contract. Let's say that. But because he did that, because he did pay for it, I think Robin, I think Robin, I, I don't give him a pass for doing it originally, but at least he's made up for it. He cleaned it up. Carlos has never cleaned it up. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, 
and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. So let's go way back. Tell me about where you grew up, your family, and what was your first inspiration to get into the entertainment business? Uh, I was a DF student, barely graduated high school. I, I, my dad was a, a salesman, drove all around California, sold fiberglass equipment. Uh, I've been building cars since I was a little kid. Like, like when I was nine years old, other kids would go ride their bikes. My brother and I used to come home and we had to restore this Triumph TR3. So we're like, we're like nine, 10 years old and we would get out this paint stripper and strip the car. We'd strip, we were restoring it. Um, and it would dissolve everything. It, you know, dissolve, it would dissolve the paint and part of my little sister, by the way. But she loved, <laughs> she loved riding in that car <laughs> what was left of her uh, um, so so I, I was raised very blue collar very much in a and in a, in a, my dad was a crazy womanizer crazy drinker when did you first notice what age that your dad might be having extramarital affairs what might be I mean it was like he would just talk about it in front of you or your mom well, my well, my mom. Okay, well, okay. So my mom. I was raised, but my mom was mentally ill. I was I was conceived during revenge sex. That happened. So here's uh, so so basically, my mom and dad were together. My dad was in the National Guard. My dad fought in the Watts riots, <laughs> which 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 he used to tell crazy stories about the three days, the three days of my dad's military service. Uh, he was stationed in at Fort uh, Fort Fort Ord. Is that up north? Fort Ord is up north. Yeah. So he's got it. He's on maneuvers. He's in the army for a couple months. Can't get a hold of my mom. Finally gets gets leave. Goes to their apartment. It's empty, gone. Not only did she leave him, she didn't leave a note. She didn't say anything. Now my mom was mentally ill. This is before children. Yes. So my dad just says, "All right, fuck it," and he just goes on with his life. He didn't do anything. You know, they were married. I think he filed for divorce and he couldn't find her. He couldn't didn't know where she was. 
Um, about three months after that, she calls him and says, come over. I want to talk to you. He's over. He's mad. He doesn't know what has happened in his life. He gets there. Uh, mom was, uh, at this point, mom, mom was heavy first, but then she, one summer she lost like 45 pounds and was actually a beauty queen. She was actually Miss Alameda County. And, uh, and my dad went over and my dad, uh, as, as most men, you know, it doesn't matter what a woman does to us when she gets naked, it's, it's, it all goes out the window. And they had sex while they're having sex. Uh, the guy my mom was seeing at this point, it was a guy named, uh, it was a writer for the Alameda paper. One of the papers was a reporter. He's banging on the door because, because he knows that, you know, he, Nita, what's going on? And my dad starts, my dad goes, and he goes, I just start moaning. Oh, give it. Yeah. My dad's yelling. Like he's fucking my mom yelling. So this guy can hear it as he walks out. He goes, he goes I just zipped up my pants and said, it's all yours. Now. And he walked out and the guy was in front of the crying. Cause my mom, my mom was pretty, my mom, Mentally ill people. My mom was brilliant. She had a 185 IQ. That's where it stops. They tested her at 185. She spoke four languages. She was a concert pianist. Um, uh, she was amazing and insane as shit. Brilliance can be a problem. I'm just dumb enough <laughs> to not be psychotic. And I'll th I'll th there are people that would argue that, but I haven't killed anybody and I haven't done time so far. <laughs> but I've thought about it. So so basically, my dad walks out. Well, he so he he, he screws my mom one more time and thinks he's done it was good it was for him it was a period on the radio done they were he, my dad told me this he goes we were done i was over i was this crazy bitch so she calls him like th like a month and a half later and says i'm pregnant and he's like good tell him her boyfriend and she said no it's yours and uh so my dad did the right thing how do you know it was him and not the other guy Here's a funny story. So my dad says, my dad says, he goes, I swear to God, it wasn't my kid. He goes, I knew you weren't my kid. My mom, I'm telling you, by the way, this is my life. He goes, he goes, here's how I knew you're my kid. We go to the hospital. She, mom has a baby. He goes, I, I know it's not my kid. I'm waiting for this kid to come out, you know, not being, and born. And my dad goes, that's not my kid. My grandmother went home while they were still in the hospital, went home, got baby pictures of my dad, came back and went, he's your fucking kid. Like everything. It was literally my dad and I, even to this day, even this little dot, genetics are weird. I have this little weird like mole on my forehead, uh -huh. exact same place as my dad's. I'm his kid. But up till, up till I was born and grandma came and showed him the pictures, I was not his kid. You know? And there's many times he wished I wasn't his kid later on. There's many times, you know, but he, the proof is there. The proof is there. You know, it was, it was, there's no way I could look exactly like my father and not be his. Do you think if your mom had the proper doctors and medication that she would have lived? She wouldn't take it. She had that. She had all of that. She, she had that. She just wouldn't take it. She said to me once, uh, my dad said, she said this to my dad. She didn't say this to me. She said to my, my dad said, why won't you take your medication? And my mom's looked at my father and said, cause you don't know how high my highs are and you'll never know how low my lows are. So she liked the ride. Mom liked the ride and said that flat out to my dad, which is a crazy, scary, bone-chilling insight moment from mom where you're like, holy shit. Like, you knew? Like, you, you, you were so smart and aware. You were aware that you liked the ride. Like, we, one time, mom, this is a weird story. I never talked about this on stage. I can't really. My sister, Kirsten, um, I, 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 my mom committed suicide, so did my sister, Kirsten. Um, uh, my sister Shannon, though, is, is saving people in, in Darfur. It's crazy. My other sister is, is insane. But my... 
my mom showed up one day out of the blue to my graduation uh, when I was graduating high school, barely graduating. I had to go back. I had to go back after I graduated to do th- uh, three units of summer school before they actually gave me my diploma. They let me participate in graduation ceremonies, but I was so stupid. They were like, hey, we're not gonna, they gave me a blank piece of paper on stage, and I had to go back for summer school to graduate. After I graduated, I had to go back to actually graduate. So my mom shows up for my graduation, shows up, and she's, she shows up my graduation wearing a, a green army jacket, a long green army jacket, and white vinyl go go boots to my graduation and and my dad was like she still looks good dad are you <laughs> out of her fucking mind? she had brought my sister kirsten who was little at the time and said hey i need to go i i have some friends i want to meet can i leave my sister can i leave my daughter with my uncle left my my, my sister kirsten with my uncle and disappeared they found her two weeks later in a doorway in san francisco covered in her own menstrual blood two weeks later so she would just go off the rails. Mom, it wasn't like someone that slowly kind of lost it. Mom would just stop her medication and then go off the rails. And she knew it. And she knew it. And, and the thing is, the problem with those medications is that, well, you know, again, because I have mental illness in my family, I'm aware of those medications. So, and I don't take any. I won't take them. Uh, I don't need them. Well, again, all this is disputed. Uh, they kill all empathy. The reason that you can maintain is because it kills your joy and it kills your sadness. So that's why if there's, there's, that's why all these killings, most of these killings have been done by these shootings have been done by people that are on these medications because they've lost their ability to feel. They're just in the middle somewhere and they don't have any, they don't have joy and they don't have sadness. So they're like, man, fuck it. I'm going to shoot some people. Wee. And, and yeah. And there's a, there's a, there was a website called, uh, uh, SSRI stories.com. You can go check it out. There's like 5,000 shootings are done specifically by people on these SSRI. So I used to go visit mom as a little kid. They, they, they'd take me to visit her in mental hospitals. But, but your dad is a salesman. He has to travel. Your mom is in some doorway somewhere. Who's taking care of the three of you? Well, well, uh, Kirsten uh, was with my uncle. She wasn't. She was from my mom's second marriage. So she was. She was. My dad wouldn't take care of her. And my sister Shannon lived with her mom, which is my dad's second marriage. So Shannon was with her mom, who was a nurse and was pretty responsible. So you're the only child from both your mom yeah. and your dad. And I was a latchkey kid, man. I was from the time I was nine years old. My school happened to be it was within a block, so I had a key on a shoestring, which is you know an incredible amount of uh, criminal protection. Like no one was ever gonna break into the house. I had a, I had a, I have a shoestring that is unbreakable, and it's <laughs> it's like a superhero amulet. Uh, and I was a latchkey kid from the time I was nine nine years old. And I would just go home after school and sit in the house and do what I did, do my homework. Actually, I take that back, not do my homework, and then watch TV till Dad got home. And I, and I did that. And then I was, I like, my dad was leaving me in the house by myself at 14 years old. You know, he just let me, when he'd go on out of town to do business, I would stay with babysitters for a while. But then once I was 14, I just stayed home by myself for two days. And he would, you better go to school in the morning, goddammit. That's what he would say. And he was married six times. Yep. Five times in the sixth one, he, th- this one of them, he just lived with for 10 years. And did any of them provide any stability for you? Two, three, and five. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. I learned, I learned from those women, yes. So as you're a teenager, do you think to yourself, there's no way my mother is going to live? That's, that's where that joke uh, in Titus, the first episode of Titus we did, you know, I pitched an episode called Dad is Dead, where basically we thought my dad was dead for three days because he'd had a mild heart attack. This true story, had a mild heart attack. And my brother called me and said, uh, hey, uh, dad's dead. And I'm like, oh, my God, because my dad had a bunch of heart attacks. And he goes, yeah, he's been in his, he goes, he's been in his room for three days, and I, and, I, and I think he's dead. And I go, what do you mean you think he's dead? He goes, I'm not going in there. What if I wake up? 
him up and he's pissed. <laughs> this is a true story. This really happened. So I called my aunt who's a nurse and she went over and saw that's where that episode came from. But the joke, and there's a joke in, 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 the, in the first episode of Titus, the pilot called Dad is Dead, where um, they go, you know, Dad's dead. And then and then my brother goes, well, who won the pool? <laughs> and so when Mom, when we found out Mom, I, I had cut Mom off out of my life for about 14 years because just whenever Mom was around, crazy happened. And I made a decision as a teenager because you know, like, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, it's, at one point when I was 14 years old, we were living in a garage. I mean, we were, I, I, I went to visit my dad. I, I ran away when I was 12. I literally, at 12 years old, I left the bus stop. I went to the freeway. I hitchhiked to San Jose Airport with this dude who, at 12. At 12. I'm on the freeway. I hitchhiked. It's the first day of my eighth grade year. I hitchhiked because my dad had beat the shit out of me the night before. And I said, I'm not dealing with this shit anymore. Um, so uh, my dad and I, my dad was always hard on us. You know, it's weird, man. It, it makes me so uncomfortable to say, People go, oh, you were abused as a kid. I'm like, ah, you know, and, you know, my dad, without my dad raising it, it really makes me uncomfortable to say that because, you know, my dad, I've, I've just come to this realization. My dad was an alcoholic. He was a fucking, he was an alcoholic. And, and I used to kind of give him some freedom on that, but he was, he couldn't not drink. He's at noon or two o'clock. In fact, on his drive home, he'd start cranking down beers from work. So ever since you can remember, he hit you. You know, it wasn't like, uh, no, I wouldn't say that because we also had great times. He took us water skiing. He taught me how to, you know, I mean, he, he was, I made sure the kids had their thing. We got in trouble for it all the time but we got in I mean so I'm 12 anyway he says something about my mom I say something back he picked me up my dad was a big dude picked me up by one hand by by both of my grabbed both of my ankles picked me up and just wailed on me and so the next morning I said fuck it I'm leaving and um I go hitchhike to the airport. I move to my mom's house. Uh, I live there for two years. She doesn't make me go. I get bronchitis. So I, the Munchausen thing had kind of happened because I would say I was sick, and my mom would just say, "Okay, stay home." So I literally, I missed. I actually missed at one point during my sixth, seventh grade year. I missed, I don't know, ninety days of school. <laughs> no, sorry, take out thirty days of school straight in a row because I had bronchitis. Um, so a DF student, and thank God for California public school system because they just kept moving you along. I, the joke I do is I didn't graduate; I was let go. <laughs> they just went, "Thank you, you're done here." Um, like they move, just kept moving through the system. So the next summer I go to my dad's. The next summer I go to my dad's. I'm thirteen or fourteen. I'm fourteen now, and, and I, I'm spending three weeks with my dad. He never let go that I ran away. Never let it go. Like, hey dad, can you pass the salt? Yeah, why don't you fucking run away and get some salt like he would never he never let it go like every sentence so uh now i was with my dad for i think it's three weeks with my dad for over the summer and then i went back to my mom's and when i get to my mom's house we get out of the we walk out of the burbank airport which is the best airport in the world because it looks like it's from the 40s still i get out i get out of the car we we there's there's no there's no car there's no car there she go and we go to the bus stop and I'm like, what happened to the car? She goes, I had to sell the car. And I said, what? And, and, and like, like, I don't know any of this is going on. We get in a bus. We take three buses. We end up at this house. At, and oh, we're at a bus stop in. Uh, we're at a bus stop right by where the IKEA is now in Burbank. And I go, what are we doing? She goes, well, we got evicted. We got evicted when I lived with my mom. We got evicted in two years. We got evicted three times. It's pretty bad when, as a kid, you know the sheriff's name. How's it going, Doug? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, that's that's pretty bad. So, uh, so we go to we we go to this house, and I go. So this we moved here, great. And she goes, well, this is a friend of mine's house. We live in the garage, and we and all our stuff was in the garage, and it was a cot for me. And I was like, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm I'm 14 now. Uh, I'm already going through puberty. I don't think I don't think dating women's going to be a possibility. Uh, you know, let's go to my house. Would you have a key? No, I have a garage door opener. 
that's my mom and that's the car you know i, I didn't want and i didn't want to grow up like that so i moved back to my dad's house uh, i called my dad and i said we're living in a garage and he said good get your ass here move back there and then literally for the next four years of my life no matter what i said complained about it was move back to your fucking mom's go ahead live in the garage so he had that over me when i was about 15 16 we started getting in pretty much random but but consistent fist fights like brawling and when I, when I finally when I was 17 it got to a point where we were we were duking it we were duking it in the kitchen literally brawling and my stepmom screaming and chairs are breaking and I was 17 I've been working out and I, and I grabbed my dad and I picked him up off the ground and I sit like a baby I was so adrenaline and pumped up because he's a big dude and I set him on the kitchen counter and, and at that point the look in his eyes changed and he went all right fuck it knock it off hey put me down fuck it damn, ah. and they're like we're done this is bullshit and then uh, um <laughs> and in that time, I'd fall into a bonfire from drinking too much. And so he left that weekend and said, uh, said we're going skiing. You can fuck off. So that weekend, I called my aunt and I said, uh, I need to move out because we're going to kill each other. I said, I want to kill him now. I said, I actually want to kill him. And she said, okay. Uh, and I was crying at the time. And so I moved to my aunt. Thank God for my aunt because without her, I never would have done stand. My aunt Kathy, who's like literally, she's Gandhi. I mean, she's of our family. She's the sweetest human being in the planet. Her, her husband's an, as an ex-Navy SEAL, UDT. He's an old guy. Who was when it was underwater demolition. So you have this, you have this. My dad, who who's a good guy. My dad was back to his friends and loyal, but he was an alcoholic, and, and and he thought his kids needed to be have their asses beat to be good people. And so they had that, and then and then I move and I move with my aunt, who's just like the most tolerant person, and I still probably owe her money for phone bills I ran up and stuff. And uh, and I would stand in my garage and start doing stand. I, I started. I decided to be a stand up. What was the inspiration? I'd been talking about it for a long time, and what finally happened was a friend of my dad's, a girl he dated, the San Francisco Comedy Competition was happening, and I was this when I was 14 at the time. The San Francisco Comedy Competition was always one of the biggest yeah. competitions in the world and very well respected. They picked 40 comedians and narrowed it down to one. Yeah, and, uh, it was legendary for a long time. So here's what happened. I, I uh, Danielle, it was this woman named Danielle, had was dating this guy who was in the competition and called my dad and said, because she, she, it's so funny. People around my dad knew I wanted to do comedy, and I told my dad, but he never just leave. Ah, ah. It's like I think it's, I think parents hear you say I want to do comedy, and they hear like, oh, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a cowboy. That's what they hear. They don't really hear you're really gonna do it. So when I was 14, they took me to the steakhouse to watch one of the uh, one of the we they're now down to 20, uh, 29, and I got to see Michael Winslow and Dana Carvey and Michael Davis and uh, A. Whitney Brown and um, like the list is endless of who was on that show. And I sat there as this 14 year old kid and I was like, okay. I'm in, I'm in a steakhouse. Okay, this is not like some crazy theater. These guys are just, some of them are good, some of them suck. And that was the night I said, I'm going to do this. And I didn't write comedy till I moved out. And, and I was, there, was a, there was a station called The Quake with Alex Bennett, and they had comics on all the time. Alex Bennett was the most powerful guy in comedy radio in the country back then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what happened was, was I just start, I started writing. I wrote five minutes of material. And, oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was 15 minutes. It turned out to be five. I went and I had this big boom box with it. it had a microphone that was attached it had an antenna on one side and this big giant microphone and I would stand in my aunt's garage uh, I wrote the material and I and I rehearsed I just rehearsed it I will say I say this I took my brother to an open mic I went to open mic at, at the punchline in San Francisco and I, I I just went there to watch and I watched and like half the guys were just I was like wow those guys are funny and half the guys were horrible they were just horrible and I was like well I'm already funnier than this you know again the arrogance and narcissism and crazy psychoticness 
of a comic. And so I went home and I wrote, I wrote what I thought was 15 and I practiced it for two hours a night because I knew the second I hit the stage, I was going to black out. And that's exactly what happened. I walked on stage and I got, hi, how you doing? And I don't remember anything. And I ended with this bit where the, oh my God, fucking horror show, uh, a, a bit about Reagan to we are the champions by queen. That was my closer at the time. And, uh, and I, I, the audience went nuts. And, and I think God gives you, or the universe gives you that first one. And then you, then I tanked for the next four or five shows. I'm not going to let you go on this, even though you want me to let you go. You have to at least tell me what happened the day you found out about your mom. And after that happened to your mom, could you see the signs in your sister? And did you try to save her before? Yes. So mom, I was living in, I was, I moved to LA in 88. I moved to LA. I was working, I was busting my ass. And the thing is I had the only way to make money was to go on the road. Cause I was you know, on the road. And that's when Kevin Rooney told me nobody, uh, Kevin Rooney said, Leno said, no one gets funny in LA. That's, we got to get back to that. No one gets funny in LA. You end up doing the same seven minutes for four years. They get funny in New York though. Yeah. True, because you have to. Yeah, yeah, there's a difference. Although all the alternative guys, that whole scene started, and everybody, you weren't, if you did the same thing more than three times, people, you, I, I think that was a really good thing for L.A. Uh, that was before that. So uh, uh, my mom, I was living in an apartment uh, here in West Hollywood, and uh, I get a phone call, and my dad says, uh, hey, and I didn't talk to my mom in, I don't know, nine years, 14 years, something like that. And the last time I talked to her was at my dad's house. She called and she was hammered. And she just said, see, hey, you doing? Hey, I'm living in Missouri now. I'm working at a chicken plucking factory. And I was like, okay, mom. And it was, it was one of those ones you actually, I, if I had known she was on the phone, I wouldn't have picked it up, but I, I accidentally picked it up. And she goes, I just bought a 1956-33. What? And, and I'm like, okay, mom. And she goes, so are you doing good? And I heard you're doing comedy. She was fucking hammered. And it was, and, and it was, uh, it was like 10 o'clock on the West Coast. So she was hammered and it wasn't even noon yet. And I, I didn't ever talk to her after that. My dad calls me. I'm living here and it's like, I don't know, 90, maybe 91. And I, he says, he says, hey, I got to tell you something. Your mom, uh, your mom's dead. She killed herself. And I, and I actually literally, I'd already written her off. I have this weird, again, psychotic. I have a switch. Like if you, if you fuck up my life too much, cl click and it's over. Like we're not. And I just went, okay. And then I go, stop. And I go, I go, what? And he goes, you're not reacting. I go, I haven't seen her in 14 years. I go, I, we, we, you know, and I said, who won the pool? Dad, we knew this was coming. And that's where that joke came from. And he goes, stop. And I said, dad, I'm fine with it. Uh, and, and he goes, he goes, I don't like the way you're acting to this. And I go, well, how do you want me to react to it? I haven't seen her in 14 years. And we kind of got to start a little argument with me and my dad. And I hung up the phone and I didn't react to it. I was like, yeah, mom killed herself. And I moved on. And my, she was my girlfriend at the time before she was my wife. And now she's my ex-wife. Uh, she was like, everyone was freaked out that I didn't react. People were literally, people, if someone dies cry because you will get a have a lot easier life because if you don't if you don't react to someone close in your life dying all of a sudden everybody thinks you're psychotic um and what happened was i was on a plane like three months later and i was reading a newsweek article and i wrote this was in titus i was reading this week and it talked about mental illness it said mental it said mental the article saw mental illness genetic question mark and i'm like oh shit and i started reading this article and it was just funny to me that uh, i was living in fear of being mentally ill and all of a sudden i started thinking about my mind they were serving turkey that day on the plane and and i smelled the turkey my mom was this amazing cook and i it dude it was one i was in the middle of a flight thirty thousand feet in the air and i start sobbing 
sobbing uncontrollably. I'm shaking and people are freaking out. So I got up and went to the bathroom and I stayed in the bathroom for about 45 minutes just crying. And, and so I basically got over my mom's death or dealt with my mom's death in the bathroom of a Delta flight. It was, it was literally the dam just broken. It was, it was horrifying, honestly, because it totally, it was a kind of sobbing where you're out of control, where you can't stop it. You're, you're, you can, and I'm not, and I'm not that, I, you know, I'm, I can handle life. And, and I just lost it on the plane and the stewards was beating on the door. It was, a, that was a bad day. And a good day, because at the end, I was like, I got it. I'm good. And then she cried because you called her a steward. <laughs> I, no, I, I call her air waitress. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I promise I'll get off this. No, you won't. You're never letting this go. Did someone call you and say, Titus needs to get this out? Can you get, look, we can't work with him anymore. Get him. Can you have a breakthrough with Titus, Barry? <laughs> Sit him down. He trusts you. <laughs> go ahead. So you asked me. You're not going to let me go. So obviously you get off the flight and probably in your mind, your crusade is I've got to save my sister now. Yeah. Kirsten. Well, Kirsten didn't have a chance. My dad said that about Kirsten. Kirsten wasn't his. It was for my mom, for my mom's second marriage. He, that guy wasn't a good dude at all. So my mom was taking her around and, and, uh, and, but mom was living this nightmare life. Kirsten was there when my mom shot and killed her husband. I mean, when I asked Kirsten, what this is fuck, man, you know, it's weird is that I've written comedy about these things, but when you ask me to really talk about them, it, it's, it's, and as I'm getting older and you start to realize what that situation was, my mom had moved to Idaho with this dude. This is, this is how, this is how bad Kirsten had it my sister who took her own life they moved to Idaho my mom had married this guy he is his oil rig worker and that joke I did he was half OJ Simpson half OJ Simpson and how old was she then Kirsten was seven six or seven uh, maybe eight the Thanksgiving dinner one night uh Thanksgiving dinner my mom put the turkey down 15 minutes late and this guy was a raging alcoholic mom was mom attracted these guys you know I, as I said in my act she would move into a town and she was kind of good looking and she would attract the alpha loser she'd always like to do so this guy Thanksgiving dinner hit the table 15 minutes late. He got pissed. He threw the turkey across the room. This is what my sister told me. Threw the turkey across the room. Then mom got pissed, and she countered uh, with it. She took a boiling pot of potatoes and just threw it on him. Um, and uh, and I said, and, and by the way, which is totally accurate, because I read that in the domestic violence desk reference. That's the response. And then this guy beat the shit out of my mom, like where he actually literally crushed her face in. So in I've talked about these stories. Like we did comedy about this, which is weird, because as I'm talking about it now, it doesn't seem that's funny <laughs> so what happens is is that she's there the guy's drinking mom goes upstairs uh and gets his gun came down and shot him three times just kept putting bullets in him in front of my sisters in the room you know and uh and so, so what happens is Kirsten goes we got to call an ambulance and you call in and my mom said no wait 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 stop and my mom waited to the dude to die to let him bleed out and then she called the ambulance because she didn't want him to live and the weirdest thing is because she was so beat up. Uh, and Kirsten told me this. So this is another story about the dog. Like the guy didn't like Kirsten's dog. Here's how bad Kirsten had it. Like you can say what you want about my dad. You can say what you want about my life. But my dad had a, at least it was a roof over my head all the time. And there wasn't someone in the You know, Kirsten had no shot. So what happens is, is that... Um, is that she had a dog, this is another side story. She had a dog that the guy didn't like, so the dog just disappeared one day. And then Kristen was like, where's my dog? And mom said, oh, he ran away. And two nights later, the dog showed up, um, stabbed repeatedly. My mom had didn't, my mom had kind of killed and buried the dog and the dog had survived and was, he had made it back to the house. Shit is fucked up, isn't it? So, 
<laughs> he, he says, you know what's weird is I grew up in a different situation. This was my daily life. This was all the time. So when people go, how do you talk about this? I go, this is just what happened. I hitchhiked when I was 12. You know, I ran away, did this. And I, and, and hopefully uh, people understand when they say in a meeting with me, go, well, he's kind of nuts. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm good. I handled it. So Kirsten, so basically the guy bleeds out. The guy had beaten my mom so bad that when they went to trial, um, not only did they acquit her, but she got the guy. The guy had a $100,000 life insurance policy. My mom got the money, you know. And then Kirsten, some Kirsten moved to Florida. And Kirsten, now, you know, you grow up like that. Like, I, I, I did a thing called the Landmark Forum. I've dealt with a lot of my stuff. I did the forum too. Yeah, it really helps me a lot deal with it, you know, because it's all, all these stories are horrifying. For those of you who don't know, the landmark forum is sort of an offshoot of Est in the 70s. It actually was this. They just changed the name. It's these people that are trained, landmark forum leaders are trained 7 to 11 years, and without it, basically all that stuff in your life that holds you back, you clear it. Now, if you've heard these stories so far, you would say, holy shit, you should, I, literally, I have so much evidence that I should be homeless or in prison right now instead of going around just ranting on stage to audiences. There's so much evidence that I should not be where I'm at. I should not have had my own television show. I got a Writers Guild nomination for an episode I wrote. I'm not, there's, and with, no, with, with DF Student, there, the, without the forum, none of this would have happened. What was your first story that you built, that you created evidence for, that they tore down? Well, the big one was my dad hates me. My dad, my dad, my father hates me and he's always hated me. And they said to me, and so I tell them the story of my daddy, beat me, beat me, we was getting fist fights, he's horrible, he always called me a loser. And the forum leader goes, uh, Okay, got it. So did he did he did he kick you out of the house? No. Did he did he uh, did he make sure that uh, did he ever give you any attention? I go. He was on my ass all the time. And they go. Someone who loves you, someone who doesn't love you, doesn't do that. Someone who doesn't love you doesn't give a shit about you. You're just out of their life. Someone that loves you is up your ass every day, making sure you turn out to be a good human being. And it was weird. It wasn't that. It, this went on for a while. They let you do it. At one moment, I had this epiphany about my dad. Like, he, that's all because his dad was like that. That's all he knew how to do. And once I got Got that I was like and I called my dad from the forum and I'm like dad I get it I get that you love me the whole time here's it you, they make you call I'm like dad you love me and I get it I get that you were up my ass every minute because you love me more than anything and he goes where the fuck are you <laughs> and, I, and I go I'm at the forum they told me get out of there right now what are they doing to you I go no dad I'm fine I get who you are now go, Jesus Christ what the <laughs> he's he's yelling at me on the phone I'm like no and I started laughing because I realized he was just being him also at the forum sometimes you get done at midnight and you have to make the calls at yeah. midnight and you're calling people waking them up and you sound drunk you sound drunk I love you I love you man you're the best thing ever happened what time is it I don't know I gotta tell you but you're not drunk you're just high on like insight so anyway I would go work she lived in Florida I would go she's a great poet she liked these read these poems that were so deep and everything and she tried really hard and I got her in the forum she did the forum but she also had the, the mom thing and, and uh, we had some we, she stayed at camp with Christmas with us one year and just was just like kind of out of her mind and we had an argument and, and but anyway so I would go to Florida and hang out with her and and how you doing? She took the forum. She was kind of living a decent life. And um, and then we had her and I had a falling out uh, over, over Christmas one year. And uh, and I thought she's living her life. She's fine. And, and she was with this guy. Man, she's it's so weird how don't people don't react to as a 50 year old man. Please don't react to assholes that do you think you're going to ruin your life. There's 3.5 billion men and 3.5 billion women. You'll find somebody else. Just move the fuck on. You know, um, and fuck all of them. Either way, just move on. You don't let someone ruin your life. So she had this boyfriend that she was actually dating, and uh, and they were they've been together for a couple of years, but they would they would be together for five weeks, and then they would break up, and then they'd be together for three.
three days they break up so then uh, hurricane not katrina it was hugo or some one of the hurricanes had come in in florida and in the middle of that night he had broken up with her or whatever he was a fireman or emt worker and she went to his house she went to his bedroom and uh, they just broken up and found his handgun sat at the end of his bed in the middle of the bed and blew her brains over the headboard and there's just there's an epilogue to this story and you know she didn't have a shot man she was drug around with my mom she was left at people's houses the poor kid didn't have a shot she's never had a shot and you know and it's 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 the only thing i can't i haven't talked about on stage and i probably won't because there's no you know, mom's crazy was aggressive in her crazy. Kirsten just kind of got got dealt a shit hand and had to live with it. At least with my dad, I had a place. You know, I was anchored somewhere, you know, or chained like a Rottweiler, whatever you want to call it. But I was, I had something backing me up, you know. At the end of the day, my dad would fuck with me. But if anybody else fucked with me, my dad was like, uh, go punch those guys. <laughs> I got you. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll hit his dad if he is. So here's what happened. So Kirsten kills herself. Um, and then I'm back. I go to, got back to Florida and I was Hollywood Florida Club um, was where I was and I was there and, and my buddy Tommy's with me at the time and her boyfriend shows up at the gig like it's the weirdest thing ever he shows up at the gig and and so I have to show you he's gonna talk to you and he's got a buddy and we sit down and he goes you know your sister was really upset with you and, and I go what and, and he, go, he goes, he goes, yeah, you know, you didn't talk to her. So she was really upset. And, and you know, and, and what happened, you know, had to do with, you know, and I, and I stopped them. I go, are you fucking kidding me? I said, and he goes, are, are you telling me that because my sister and I were in an argument that she killed herself? He goes, well, what I'm saying is, and I said, get up. And he goes, well, I go, get the fuck up right now. And I'm going to, I'm fighting this guy. I'm going to beat his ass. Because I hadn't dealt with my sister either. And my buddy Tommy stands there and he grabs me and his buddy grabs him. And we just end up screaming at each other in the, in the, in the, in the parking lot of, uh, of this club. You know, it's pretty ballsy though, isn't it? She used your gun, asshole, and sat at the end of your bed and blew her brains over your headboard. My fault? Okay. Anyway, people are just, I guess, you know. Wow, why are you making me tell all these fucking stories, man? Sorry, I'm so sorry. And now this has some insight to the industry with Christopher Titus. Yeah, well, yeah, this is all used for testimony later on when I snap. This is the shit that will play on CNN and MSNBC after I kill those people. I always told you that I, I was so proud to work with you because you always want to be associated with people who are brilliant and geniuses well you were like lenny bruce and george carlin's son nah, that's a crazy compliment to deal with that's that's not even that's not valid i, I would say maybe because a storytelling maybe cosby and a little bit of carlin carlin to this day same with patton's werewolves and, and lollipops if when i feel shitty about my comedy i will go listen to werewolves and lollipops or go listen to carlin's last three specials well, there's people out in the world now listening to your last three specials and waiting for the next one. So, But I think there was something about you that always fascinated me about your life and how you overcame and did it. You're a brilliant man, incredibly talented, funny, great looking, but you're obviously broken. <laughs> <laughs> You're obviously broken. I'm making that t-shirt. You can't be that brilliant without being broken. Listen, man, you, like, life keeps life and you're going to you're going to keep fucking up. You know, you, the problem is that you either have tools to deal with your fuck ups or you don't. I the landmark form gave me the tools to deal with my fuck ups. So now when those happen, I can stop and go, you know, lose my TV show because of the forum. I, I you know, I'd had it four years before and I I'd, I'd, I'd kind of got out of it and I, I and I could totally accept my fault. I've accepted that anything that happens in my life has nothing to do with my mom or my dad, has nothing to do with anything I've do, they've done or you've done or anybody else. The business isn't keeping me out from getting the success I want. 
want. It's me, something I'm doing. So I can't affect you. I can't affect them. I can't affect my dad. I couldn't affect anybody. The only person I can affect is me. So because of that, that's why I learned in the forum, the only person I can affect is me. And because of that, now when something goes wrong, it's it's so much easier to sit back and go, those guys did it. It's their fault, you know, but it's not. It's my fault. So what did I do? You know, I, I, the insight I got about my ex-wife was um, I go, she cheated on me. She stole all our money. She wrote 300. She, she it, was, it was horrible. Like she, she embezzled like 300 grand from us. It's crazy. I came home from the road and all the bank accounts were empty one day. And she said it was identity theft. So I was in. The, I went back to the forum after the divorce was started because I was really out of it. I said, I need some insight. And the, the guy goes, well, I go, what you do? I go, I go how, can, how can it be my fault? She did this, this, and this. And they go, well, what did you? You do when she did that I go what do you mean I go she did this and this you go well what'd she do when you did that I go nothing she's my wife what could I do exactly they were like you let it go you just kept stepping over the problem you kept stepping over the problem why are you surprised now that the problem blew up I was like wow that's a hard one to face when it's all your fault because by the way your success uh, your success to get in a position where people help you for success yes those people helped you but to get in that position is your fault uh, to fail my TV show my fault once you've accepted it's your fault, this movie that we just did, Special Unit, it's funny or it's not. My fault. You know, no one, and, and I got people I'm responsible for with it, you know, the investors and stuff, but it's, it's my fault if it's good and if it's my fault if it's bad. If it's good, it's obviously everybody else's contribution, but I wrote it and I directed it and it's going to work or it's not. Let's talk about what's the first inspiration that you realize maybe I should take my life and turn it into a show called Norman Rockwell is Bleeding? Um, I was going to quit comedy. I was going to quit. I was to the point I was 12 years in. I've been doing stand-up. I hated... Every comic will get this. If you do... Comics, there's a thing for a long time, and, and it's happening a lot less now because there's so much media to get your stuff out. There were comics who did the same act for 10 years. You know, guys. There's guys to this day. I know one comic that's done it 17 years, same fucking act. And he'll... he'll I got my new stuff, and it'd be a three-minute bit about Bob Dylan. You're like, what are you... What? That's not your new stuff, dude. So, um, so what happened was is that I... Uh, I started to hate my act. I'd be on stage and I'd, I'd, there'd be, I've talked about this before, a piece I'd written that I'd been doing six years would start to come towards my brain to come out of my mouth and I'd go, oh, fuck, I hate this fucking piece of shit. And I would, I would say it again. So uh, I was going to quit. And I had taken the forum and I thought, the forum tells you that, you know, that life doesn't exist without risk, really. You know, it doesn't exist. You're not living life. You're just flatlining. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to toss out. And I had a great manager, a guy named Bruce Smith, who's a Maria Bamford's manager. I love Bruce Smith. Omnipop. He was a majent. He was, he was agent. part agent, yeah. part manager. Now he's a manager. Yeah. He's, he, but, but, but he was, he was, he was one of the few people that said, keep going further. Him and Dave Stroop would be like, uh, one of the comedy club owners, he would be like, go further with that. So I wrote Norman Rockwell's Bleeding. Uh, the original bit I wrote was called uh, We Need Comedy to Get Rid of Our Desire to Kill which I I, so I hated my comedy so much dude I had to break it I shaved my head one day I just shaved the sides of my head I was like Mr. Perfect Hair and everything I just fucking one day I went I hate what I'm doing I gotta be different so I thought well, I'll just and I just shaved my head uh, and I wrote this bit called We Need Comedy to Get Rid of Our Desire to Kill which ended up on the last two specials ago or last special um because I was, it was such a conceptual bit that I, I wasn't ready to do it. And basically, it's the worst day you can have from beginning to end. I'm just ranting. I'm just raging on stage about the worst day I can have. And at the end, I'm about to stab my boss in the chest. And he goes, what? He goes, he goes, he goes, he goes what's, what's, the, what's the matter with you? And I said, I just need a good laugh. And that's why, it was, it was to point out why we come to comedy clubs. 
And I, and I took in a guy from my acting class because I was so I, was, I so knew this. I was going to get my ass kicked. I knew when I did this bit, the audience was going to rise up uh, as, it, as they were they were the South pre-Civil War and kill me. And they went nuts. They went fucking nuts. I get done three-minute long bit. They go, ah. And I, all I've got is my old shitty material. So I drop back into that, and I tank for seven minutes. So I get an applause break in three, tank for seven. And now I'm like, fuck. And so I decided to throw everything out, and I threw every piece of comedy I had out and I started writing Norman Rockwell's Bleeding and I took even the stuff that I'd written about my mom and dad the cute stuff I'd written about their divorce I took that dismantled it and wrote the real stuff about I wrote about my mom's mental illness so I'll never forget the first time I did and comedy is such a process you have to like this new bit I have this this new show I'm writing about politics I have to figure out a way to write it to, so once you get these concepts it takes a while to get it right, you know? I mean, people that you watch these guys, and people, that guy's brilliant. Yeah, but it took him eight months to get that joke to work. It took him four months just to get the concept funny. Um, so I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I wrote the bit about my mom's mental illness, and I didn't realize it. I get on stage to do it, and I start doing it, and I start crying on stage. I start literally, I'm choking up. I'm in the middle of these jokes, and the audience is like, the audiences are such a great barometer of who you're being at the moment. They really sense you. And the audience, they were like, ha, ha. And they started just, ha. And, and I was like, hey, my mom, this is my show, mental illness. I used to, and, and, and it tanked. But I did it the next night, next night, next night, next night. And then I realized that, that everything in that happens in the world is just absurd. Some people think I'm kind of I'm kind of mean or psychotic or heartless to be able to talk about my mom's mental illness or my, or my mom's suicide or, or, or my dad's fist fighting my dad. Some people think that's kind of, that's kind of, how can you even talk about that, man? It's so serious. No, it's absurd. It's human beings are fucking absurd. Human beings are weird. And, and so if, if, you, if you can write it from, you can't write it from anger. You can't be mad. At, I couldn't be mad at my dad and write the jokes I've written about him. I had to be over it. So you complete that and you showcase it for the Montreal Just for Last Festival. No, no, no. I didn't get it there. That's not what happened. Actually, Montreal, I'd done two. I'd done two I got two deals out of Montreal. Um, one was uh, New Faces. I got a deal. We, they hired a writer. No one's going to give me that shot. Hired a writer. He had me in a goofy thing where I had a Latino buddy, and we were dating twins. And the twins, we never knew who we were dating. And it was fucking horrible. And I realized, wow, this guy, they paid this guy to do this for me. Then I got another deal where we actually uh, had pitched a show that didn't go. So I... Uh, I had gone to two, two, three deals, and and although I'd been paid well, I nothing happened. And I took the form and I said, you know what? Next deal, I'm writing it. Fuck it, I don't give a shit what he says. And I told Bruce, I said, I want to write it. And Bruce was like, well, no one's gonna give that to you. I said, okay, then we won't do it. And they go, what's the concept? And I said, here's the concept. And he's like, okay. And that was where that was the idea for Titus came up. And uh, Bruce was like, okay, let's sell it. And he, but he, I thought, I think we all thought it was pretty outrageous. Um, um, so here's what happened. So. When we pitched it all around, we went to NBC to pitch it. I'll never forget this. This is executive. This is why. This is why executives. I, I have a big problem, and it's never going to help me. And it, there's some great ones. Doug Herzog, phenomenal. Uh, John Landgraf. There's some. There's some great people in the business. There's some. You know, McPherson at his peak was. There's some guys that are just phenomenal executives, and then there's the rest of everybody. Just like comics, there's some great fucking comics, and then there's everybody else. So here's what happened. We go to NBC to pitch it. We pitch this. We pitch Titus out basically with a dysfunctional family. My dad's an alcoholic. My mom's mentally ill. Blah, blah, blah. The woman at NBC goes, this is great. We love this. Here's what we're about at NBC. And she takes this rock from the successories. You know that, show, that, that thing where they these inspirational thing? And it's this round rock and it says risk on it. And she slams it down the table and goes, good. We love this. This is what we're about at NBC. We walk out of the room. Bruce goes, I've never been to a meeting that went that well. Phenomenal. Walking the line goes, he's going, I think we sold it. I'm like, all right, whatever, good. 
they call us back literally three hours later. Yeah, it's a little too edgy for us. <laughs> and I was like, and I and I and, and and I'm literally on my computer, and when you know, I'm, I'm writing her a letter right now. I'm going, why don't you send the risk rock back to the accessories? Because you didn't risk to get it. You went to the fucking mall and bought it. And he's like, calm down, calm down, calm down. I'm like, no, man, you don't you, you don't get stoked about something and sell us out on this the second and see. So anyway, so I didn't send the letter. And then we're at um, we're at Fox pitching it again, and um, Michael Hanel and Mindy Schulteis, who are great producers, um, amazing. Yeah, they were just good and good people too. Um, and yeah, yeah, anyway, so we're there and we pitch it, and at the end of it, I just said, "Listen," she goes, "She goes, do you think people will go for this?" I go, "I go, I go, I tour the country all the time. These jokes work everywhere." Because what had happened was we had, the reason that it got seen because I'd rented, I took my last eighty five hundred bucks and I rented the Hudson Theater for like I had Mondays and Tuesdays for six weeks, and I'd been working the bit of work and Norman Rockwell on the road and Bruce to his credit goes okay it's all about your childhood you need something about your current life so I went out before literally two weeks before we had to debut the show and I wrote a bunch of new stuff about my girlfriend that used to punch me in the face and my ex-wife cheated my, 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 when she was a girl she, my ex-wife cheated on me when we were dating also <laughs> and I stayed with her yeah I'm a smart guy see how dumb I am um, and uh and, and I so I wrote those bits and I got those working and I came back and we put the show up and the night that Titus the night that the executive came to see Titus we had eight people in the audience eight and I did it full out and uh, and she went back to Fox and said I found something and we had a meeting with Michael and Mindy at 20th and they said uh, they said wow this is you know we like it and uh, it's a little risky and uh, what do you think I said I said doesn't matter I go listen all I want to do with Titus at the end of the day is because dysfunctional used to be a bad word. I want to cause a paradigm shift in the way people see their screwed up lives. I don't want people to be surprised anymore to talk about their mom shooting their husband or anything or, or getting in a fight with their dad. It shouldn't be, it's not a bad thing. You're, you're actually more experienced. My whole concept for Titus was, I'm like, you know what, man? The world will chew you the fuck up. If you don't understand how darkness can help you, and so that was the whole point. Like, darkness can help you. Darkness, it, 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 I've been through so much shit that when something horrible happens, I don't ball up in a fetal position now. I just go, okay, let's move on to the next thing <laughs> that's why did we did we did special unit you know special unit is another thing uh, my all my friends i have some disabled comic friends and and although hollywood talks a good game uh they don't give them jobs so and and, and now i think it's changing a little bit now i mean the fairly brothers is the only guys that have done it in that new show speechless i think but how long has it been since that they had a protest like 12 years ago about it and no one got jobs until recently so we wrote, I wrote Special Unit No. 06 to, to give all my f friends with disabilities jobs. And we did the, con you know, the concept and the whole thing was, all I want to do, Titus, I think the only way a project gets done well is if there's passion in it. You can just keep spewing shit and if you may work and fine, you'll get it. But if you have passion in it, there's something that crosses over to the audience. This is what I believe. Um, Special unit was supposed to cause a paradigm shift in the way people saw disabled people. You originally did that as a pilot for Doug Herzog, yeah. and it was phenomenal. After Showtime, after Showtime, we sold it to Showtime, and Showtime said uh, to Greenblatt, Greenblatt, Bob Greenblatt, who's now the president of NBC. Great, and by the way, another good executive, another guy who, so we pitched it to him, we pitched special unit, basically due to the Fairness and Disabilities Act, the LAPD has to hire four handicapped undercover detectives, and I play Nick Nolte's mugshot. That's the whole pitch for the movie. So we saw it 
to we sell, sell them the pitch. They goes great. I write a script. Take it in. The, take it in the green black and it goes. Yeah, we can't do this. <laughs> it's too edgy. You got to remember this is a five or a six. So people weren't as open. It wasn't like people were like you know we're gonna piss off a lot of people with this basically. Um, and so I took it to Herzog and it takes a couple months, but Herzog finally goes all right. We're gonna shoot this. And he let us. That was the first time they let me do my own production. And Brian Cranston directed it. Directed the pilot. I'd asked Brian to do the movie, but he you know he's obviously he can't he can't now. He's, he's, he's he said he goes yeah I'm busy for three years. I'm like well I can't wait that long. So uh, so now ten years later. Uh, I wrote a script. Uh, Peter Farrelly got involved for, of, of all people. But here's the re- reason I wrote Special Unit. My friends who are comics, they are put at a disadvantage all the time, even when they're really funny. Michael Aronin is really a funny cat, and he's got cerebral palsy. So as he, I mean, Michael to this day will sit in a restaurant with his wife and this happened recently he's at a fucking IHOP and these two people these two old people lean over to his wife and go it's so good you work with these people Mike's Mike works for the government he works for ICE he actually uh, is a public speaker and he's a comic when Mike goes off the, 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 there's a bit I wrote if you guys go to um, you go to YouTube there's a bit I did in Voice in My Head called The Word Retard which is a true story we were in a diner one time and this happened we all four of us are sitting there waitress comes over asks me what I want asks my buddy Tommy asks Mike's buddy and then turns looks at Mike looks back at me and goes what will he have well instead of Mike getting indignant and going fuck you I can handle myself Mike goes the other way and he starts acting so insanely retarded and so insanely disabled that he starts knocking shit off the table he goes I like your movies I can I have movies and he starts and this woman doesn't know she starts to freak out because it makes it and I, I and I'm a comic so I'm not laughing I'm gonna let him do it and he for an hour he knocked shit off the table he spilled water it was fucking hilarious and at the end at the end the waiter comes up and she's handing me the check and she's shaking she's just shaking she goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I got him up like that. Then Mike goes, don't be sorry. You're my favorite waitress. I'll see you tomorrow. And, then, <laughs> and we walked outside. And I, and I, and I wait till I'm outside. And I, I'm, 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 there's a there's a little grass thing, that little hill thing outside. There, and I'm just sitting and I start fucking laughing. I'm hysterical. And I go, dude, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And Mike, dead fucking serious, not smiling, looks me in the eye and goes, that bitch deserved it. And I thought, wow, you were being like you, you like through, he was being angry angry which is great comedy he was angry through it and he stood it so that's happened to mike a bunch of times so and i and here's why the movie got done because I, I decided i promised those guys in 06 that we we're going to get this done and it took me 10 years to get it done i made a promise to those guys that we we're going to get this fucking movie done and deborah carrington who was in in um in total recall she's been in a bunch of stuff and this kid named uh, tobias forrest who's really great david figlioli plays plays a guy with autism he's the only guy who's just a pure actor that we got um, and then we we hired we hired 12 other uh, disabled actors for the interview scene you know i wanted to give these guys work and uh, and they, and give them a shot to be funny they're not going to be it's not going to be a, a hallmark movie where they're the special little hero you know they're going to they're they're assholes to me cuz i'm a jerk my character is you're going to hate my character for the first 15 minutes he i'm i am playing me basically uh, <laughs> i'm here raise the money um i have a, a, a my manager now is a guy named andy cohen he's a great guy i love andy cohen andy cohen is a good good man and he he he's one of those a lot of people in business your agents managers whatever and not and you you actually get behind passion you have passion when you like somebody there's a lot of people that just want to how much can you make me now and they're they don't care what you want to do they want to put you in stuff that they think they can make fast money on well andy cares he's like he's like all right uh let's get this i said i want to get this movie done he said okay and and he started talking to people and he got these guys to give us money so and i put some of my own money in it we got three of us you know again life doesn't exist without risk so here's what happens is uh 
so I, I kind of blew the movie off and I was still kind of blowing smoke up my own ass going yeah I'm going to do it one day I'm going to do it one day and I was in the mall over here in Sherman Oaks and this guy's rolling towards me in this wheelchair and he's got gloves on and I'm watching I'm, I'm, he's like maybe he's a hundred yards away from me and I'm watching people kind of part fucking in front of this guy like it was crazy it was like it was everybody was just going off to the sides left and right and nobody would look at the dude nobody would just look away the guy's in a wheelchair right so as he walks gets to me I go how's it going brother and, he, and the guy just he looked at me then he looked around looked to see who he, I was talking to and I thought, wow, what it must it be like? And, and people, I don't think people are mean. I don't think they're being mean. I think we are taught from a very young age, don't look, don't stare, don't talk to them, don't make them feel weird. Well, so now, you, so now you're living in this world where no one looks at you, where people just ignore you. No, you're, you're not a person anymore. You're a, you're a wheelchair. That's how you are. So, uh, and I really got that when I did that. And then I was in, um, so, so that back, I was in San Diego working at the American Comedy Company and I was, I went out walking one day. I came back and there was this woman sitting across the street at a light. She had a, she had a, well, she was missing a leg. She had the, that kind of flesh color, I'll never forget it, flesh colored sock on her thing, which is just always weird. Just, you know, go to neon. If you could do it, don't try to hide. Your, your leg's not there. <laughs> go bright. Get stylish. Go styly. Um, Leather with studs. Just if I'm getting, if I'm losing a leg, it, that, that that stump is gonna look good. That's all I'm saying. Um, so I walk across the street, and this woman is sitting there. She's got a bag on. She's staring down, and the light turned green, and she didn't move. And I walked across the street, and I said, I said, "How's it going, kid?" And she looked up, and she didn't say hi. She said, "Thank you." And that fucking stopped me. I was like, wow, you, you, you thanked me for acknowledging that you existed on the fucking planet Earth. And that was the moment I decided, I don't give a fuck what anybody says. If, I, if, if we're going to make this movie, whether I got to do it with a skateboard as a dolly and a go cam, we're making this fucking movie. And, and once I decided that, it was interesting how the universe, and I knew it. It wasn't like I'd said it before. Like it, I knew we were doing this fuck. I, it didn't matter. We're, whatever, if I have to sell everything I own, we're making in this movie um so i decided to do it and we started started going forward with it and then i got this weird text one night from peter Farrelly. i don't know peter Farrelly. peter Farrelly just sends me i just see hey pete Farrelly here uh uh i hear you doing this movie uh, oh uh michael had got jackie flynn to show peter Farrelly the pilot from 06 jackie flynn the comedian from boston who's very good friends with peter yeah very good and very, and very funny he's in the movie too he plays my partner who i shoot in the first scene i shoot him repeatedly in the first scene um and so Peter Fairley says, and I don't, and I'm like freaking out. I'm freaking out that Peter Fairley, and, and, and I text him back, and, and he says, can you send me the script? And I'm like, of course, Kingpin. Are you, let me go down the list. Because wait, because as much as I hate people who have never made somebody laugh, if you've made someone laugh in movies repeatedly, you can have all my attention. <laughs> Anything you want, I'm doing. Um, and that's another thing. That's, one, that's my big, big thing with executives is that, that, it, that you come in and you tell me what's funny. I want to, I want to, here's what I want to know. Where have you worked on stage? How many jokes have you written? How many scripts have you written? And can I see them? Show me those, and then we can sit down. And you can tell me what's funny. I've been doing this since I was 19. Okay, that's my attitude about it. And I know it's really unpopular. It's not a diplomatic attitude, but we're wasting time. If you're telling me something's funny and I know it's not, after performing since I was 19, you know, at 10,000 shows, then I don't have time. Why are we wasting time? 
Now, if you're going to pay me a lot of money to waste time, I guess, but even that's not fair to you. It's not fair to you or the company that we're wasting money for. That's my opinion about it. And I know this is going to bite me in the ass later on, but that's how I feel. So uh, that's the great thing about Andy is that these guys let me do it. So, um, so Peter Fairley, he's, I sent him the script and he goes, Hey man, this is funny. It's a great concept. You know, uh, I love that you're working with disabled. We use disabled actors. And I said, I know you guys are the gold standard. You guys, are the only guys who really do. He goes, can I give you notes? I said, hell yeah, sure. You can give me notes. So he goes, all right, I'm going to call you next week. So I'm in Denver and he goes, Hey, I'm going to call you at noon tomorrow. Uh, ready. And I've got my computer in front of me. I'm the next day and I'm ready for Peter Fairley's notes. I know he's going to give me some jokes. He's fucking Peter Fairley. He's giving me some jokes. Kingpin, whatever. Peter Fairley calls me and Peter Fairley is the nicest guy in the world. And that, by the way, in the best guy in the world. But he blowtorched this script like I have never had a script blowtorched. Like he went down. He didn't just go, this joke, that joke. He went, this whole concept right here where you're, even the bad guys are disabled. He goes, I thought you were trying to make a point that disabled people are, can handle anything. And I go, I am. He goes, then why are the bad guys disabled? They can only take down disabled bad guys. And I had that moment when someone gives you a really good script note where you're like, oh, shit, I'm the shittiest writer ever. <laughs> I suck at this. And, and, I, and so it blew out literally just that one change blew out the villains it blew out all the henchmen it blew out about nine scenes and i had to rewrite 75 pages of the script and my old titus would have said you know what i know what i'm doing blah 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 but I went, no, you're Peter Farrelly. You were probably one of the funniest, like you have to admit, maybe some of the funniest movies in the last 20 years. Uh, okay, I'm going to do everything he says. And Barry, I took that script and I did every single note verbatim what he said. And the script turned out so good. So I sent it to him and he goes, this is great. I love this script. Can I give you notes? <laughs> Fuck! Now, now I'm like literally growing a tumor. And, and so I'm like, yes, of course you can give me notes. <sighs> I'm at another gig and I get everything set up again. And I'm not in the mood that I was the first time getting notes before he said it. And I go, okay. And now, when he first gave me notes, he started out with, let's go to page one. That's where he started. <laughs> this time he goes, page 65. And he gives me a joke. And I go, that's a good joke. And, and he goes, okay. And he goes, uh, page A, no, 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 68. Now page 85. Page uh, 90. Oh, I got this idea for the ending. And that was it. And I did everything he did. And it's, it's, it taught me at this, at being in show business this long, it taught me something that, what I've already known, listen to the people that know. And uh, I guess I'm going to have to learn to be diplomatic to the people that don't. Tell our audience the greatest old Titus story about your Fox show. All right, this is to every everybody out there right now who's full of piss and vinegar and thinks they're fucking great. Uh, if you're a comic, don't go to the meeting with the network president. Send everybody else. <laughs> don't go. If they say they want to talk to you, say, nah, I'm not good at this. You can't take a guy. All right, here's what happened. So we have three presidents. In the, in the three years of Titus, we have three presidents. We have Doug Herzog, who's a genius. Sandy Grusha, who I never understood. Sandy Grushaw, you know, great guy, but man, he was, it was, it was, it was, it was always uncomfortable. Both were guests on the show. Yeah. As well as Steve McPherson. Yeah. McPherson, I love Steve McPherson. Um, he, he, there's some, here, there's some people that want power and then some people that want to do great work. And that's what I found in the business. Then we had Gail Berman. Gail Berman came in and, uh, and Gail Berman, we had, we had just had problems from day one. We, you know, from the point she wanted to hire Faye Dunaway. Uh, I wanted to hire Faye Dunaway too, as to play my mom, but Faye Dunaway came in and pissed off everybody. In one day, Faye Dunaway comes to one meeting with me. I have, I have my wardrobe quits 
They say if when she's here, I'm not working. I'll give you another thing. I have uh, two of the camera crews quit. We had a four camera show. Two cameras. Uh, by the way, when Faye Dunaway comes in, I'm not working with them. I'm not working with her. So I'm going to send you. Here's my buddy Rick. He has to use his crew. What was she doing? I, I, it was just reputation. Like some of the guys had worked with her before. Some told stories about just trying to pull focus, just getting near her with the tape measure, and they she got they got screamed at. And then I went to and then I went to uh, I went to Michael and Mindy, and I said I said look guys I got a mutiny. I go I'm, I, I want to hire Fred Dunaway. God for God's sakes, what kind of press would that be for Titus? But I got a mutiny, and the crew my crew had to build a new set every week. We it wasn't Cheers. We because of the way we did we did it in one. The, the great thing about Titus and I, I to this day I still hold it up as as the best time in my life. We did a new set every week and we shot it like a play. We never stopped. We shot it beginning to end like a play. No sitcom does that, you know. Uh, at least didn't at that time. And so I was real proud of it. But our crew had to do a new set every week, so they were busting their ass. And so they were really important. My crew is the most important. Now my mistake was I should have made the network as important as my crew. So I went into this meeting, kind of fired up, and uh, and uh, and so I, the Faye Dunaway thing happened. Uh, Faye Dunaway came in, and it was a script I had written about my mom's mental illness. And Faye Dunaway had it tabbed in, in our meeting, and she flipped through every scene, every scene that we had, and said, uh, "I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. You mean all the stuff that we're supposed to show that my mom's crazy? You're not doing any of it? No, I'm not doing this. But my mom's crazy, though. I know, but I can't do this. I can't let myself be seen like this. And so we, okay, okay, okay great. Still, I was willing to hire." I said, you know what? We'll, we'll, I said, I went to Jack and Brian, who are great producers on the show. I said, let's write around it. Jack Kenny and Brian. Brian Hargrove, man. That guy's just a, that guy's, that guy's a fucking genius. Um, and so, and taught me more about story. Uh, Brian Hargrove taught me more about story in the first couple months of Titus than I'd learned in my entire life of writing stand-up. All great writers will tell you story trumps jokes. Because you, you can put jokes on top of everything. Jokes are just icing. So here's what happens. So, uh, um, so we, Gail and I, I, mean, I have this argument that, and I and I said, look, I want to hire her. So I go to I go to Michael and me. I say, look, I go. We'll hire her. I said, I'm for that, 100%. I go, but it, when she, if it blows, if it goes bad, you guys take the heat. And they went, and then I went to, and Keech came up. So Keech, Keech, Stacey Keech goes, Titus, we have to hire Faye Dunham. I said, sure, Stacey. But I said, do you do me a favor, though? When it, If it goes bad, will you deal with the crew? And nobody would. It wasn't their responsibility, and it wasn't. I'm the EP. I should have, you know, I was executive producer. It should have been my responsibility. And I called Gail. I said, "We, I can't, I can't, I can't motherfuck this crew." Now, I think that was my naivete. Look, this business is hard, and sometimes people are jerks, and you got to deal with it. Uh, I should have done something else. I should have said, I should have told the crew. I should have had a meeting with the crew and said, "Guys, Faye Dunaway is going to play my mom. Here's what we're going to do. At the end of the season, if she blows up and you guys are all upset, we're going to have a party at my house and we're going to burn her in effigy. Are you okay? We're just going to build a big." Big, big scarecrow over and, we get, and we'll get I'll have little bats made that say I survived Faye Dunaway whatever you guys want to do and we'll do a Faye Dunaway pinata so uh, and she, by the way she she from the second I met her she was she was just she was she was just like harsh she took one of our wigs from the show for a movie she did because um, Cynthia was in it Cynthia Watros and the wig it was a $12,000 wig because Cynthia cut her hair off one season we had to get a wig made for her and, and she it came back with holes in it and, and, and it was like 12 grand for a budget I'm like what are you doing so anyway, so what happened was is I said no, we're not going to hire for anyway. Okay, so me and Gail don't. Gail already thinks I'm an, I'm I'm arrogant and asshole, and I was just tired, man. I have to be honest. I was doing like politically incorrect and doing the Tonight Show, uh, writing jokes for that, writing bits for that, on top of sitting in the writers' room till midnight, on top of working with the actors, on top of rehearsing. I was so, dude. I was, I will never do that again. I'll work just as hard, but I won't do it as long. So I'm in a meeting, third season. Uh, we're in the meeting with Gail, and Gail says. 
Dharma and Greg had just cheated on each other and their ratings had gone up. And Gail said, uh, all right, new president. This is our third president, by the way. I'm tired of this president thing. And I shouldn't have gone, I shouldn't have gone to the meeting. Should not have gone to the meeting. Uh, I, I admit that. Also, especially as tired as I was. I just, we were, you know, we had so much to do. And, and I, it's still my fault. And it's no one's fault except mine. And Gail Berman goes, I want you to uh, have them cheat on each other. And I knew Dharma and Greg were doing that right now. And I, and I, and I looked at Gail Berman. Uh, okay. All right, kids, listen up. If, you're, if you want to get in show business, here's, here's what not to do. I'm going to give you the Christopher Titus what not to do. The network, the, when the network president says anything to you, you nod and go, that's a decent idea. I like that. That's what you say every time, no matter how stupid or wrong it is. You say, hey, you know what? I like that. That's hey. And let's talk to the writers. I bet you we can make that work. That's what you do. It, basically, all you're trying to do is just basically get out of the room. That's all you're trying to do at this point. So please take my advice and remember, because you're going to sit in that room if you're creative and you're going to go, the fuck are you talking about? That's what you're going to want to say. Don't say that. You go, huh, that's interesting. I like that idea. Please repeat it now. I'll give you a minute. <laughs> okay. So here's what happens. She goes, uh. I want you to have the two characters cheat on each other and have a love triangle, which is what Dharma Greg do. And I went, and s instead of going, huh, that's an interesting idea. Uh, you know, we did that episode four, but we could probably expand on it. I could have done that. That would have been enough. That would have been just enough. Instead, I said, do you even watch the show? Because let me explain to you how this show works. And then I proceeded to talk to the network president like she was a three-year-old. I went, first of all, let me explain how the show works. Okay, the show is about the whole entire premise of the show is two screwed up people together basically make a couple that is unbreakable because they got each other's back. On top of that, we did it in episode four. We had them cheat on each other in episode four. Have you seen the show? And, I, and now, one-on-one -on -one in a meeting, Maybe we could have an argument in her office. Instead, dumbass Titus does this in front of 35 people in a big conference room at the top conference room at Fox. Everybody, the studios, there, everybody's there. And then I say, I said, I said, on top of that, I go, if I go, if I haven't cheated on each other now and have a love triangle, I've just blown the entire premise of the show. The entire premise is gone. I go, the whole show is two people together, two screwed people what, 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 can fight, beat anything. If I split them up, I've lied. Show's not funny anymore. You don't trust the characters anymore, and the show's over. So we're not doing it and I'm waiting for honestly I'm waiting for literally just like like 300 like a bunch of Greeks <laughs> and with abs going ah! didn't happen what happened was dead silence literally the quietest moment in my career just just nothing just like the comics and picture the worst joke you could possibly tell you know like doing doing a Casey Anthony joke like the day she died it's that's how quiet the room is and Gail Gail sits back in her chair and all Gail says is okay do what you want and it was that quiet and and jack and brian are sitting next to me and no one said anything and i and, and i and i had this moment of just pure chill where i was like oh shit and, and i'm not making this up uh, i used to get the promo sheets how they promoted titus you know how many commercials every i'd get them and look at them the next week it was, it was like bernie mac 35 promos titus uh two and they were like at 11 30 at night so uh i was not very uh I didn't save myself in that situation, you know, I, and, and I still, you still have to stand up for what you believe, but man, sometimes it just get out of the room, just get out of the room, just, you know, let them say they're, they're, what they're going to say. Cause we had crazy shit said by people. Like we had some, we had some really great current people. And we had some people that were out of their minds. You're like, what are you talking about? Um, in my opinion, again, it's only from, I've been on stage since I was 19. I know I, I can make an audience laugh. I've been doing it. So, uh, so just, just get out of the room. And then, 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 then if you have a problem, I want you to call that person uh, and you go back in the room and you go, can we have a one-on-one? -on -one? Hey, listen, 
I don't, I sat with the writers and uh, we really couldn't make that work. So is, do you have another idea or how about this? But do it one-on-one. -on -one. Don't do it with an audience. Cause literally it was like, it was, it was like Gladiator and I got killed by a lion, man. Now you've been to the forum. How did you try to clean it up? Um, I hadn't gone to the forum in three years. I'd kind of stayed out of it. I, you know, and I, and it took me two weeks. I actually, I, I'd never felt more because they didn't cancel the show right away. We did that season. And then uh, by the end, Gail was so pissed that, uh, and the only regret I ever had in my career, in my career at all was I get a call. I have to go. Gail wants to have lunch with me because they're getting ready to pick up the show for the next year. And, and I, I'm driving and Dana, I get a call from one of the Fox executives. Dana Walden. There's another executive, her and Gary Newman, two smart fucking people. Co-presidents of 20th. But they were always smart. Dana Walden and, and Gary Newman were a, a different sides of the same coin, but really insightful. Like, they, good executives. So Gail calls you to have lunch after this episode. Right. So I'm driving to the lunching and I get a call from Dana Walden and she just goes, you better kiss her ass, Titus. You want this show picked up. We love this show. You love this show. Get it picked up. And I was like, okay, all right. I, I made a mistake. I knew I made a mistake. And Dana was dead right. And I go, I go to the meeting with Gail and I, and I, here's the biggest mistake I made. I, I went, I go, if you want us to have a baby, we'll have a baby, whatever you want, we'll do it. And I sold my fucking soul. I sold it out. I should have said to Gail Berman, I should have said, Hey, I blew it in that meeting bad. I should not have talked to you that way. I just said, but and this is the last time, by the way, just so you guys know, this is the last time I'm telling this story. I've told this story before, but I've never got this inside. I just got, uh, I should have said, I blew it. I'm never doing that again. I said, but this show is funny every week. Stacy Keach is brilliant and we're kicking ass. I will continue to give you funny. I promise. And I won't talk to you that way again, but I'm not going to change the concept of the show. If you have any ideas, we'll listen to them and we'll do them, but we're going to do them our way. Instead, I kissed her ass and you, you could just see it. And then, the, and, and then here's how bad it was here, but here's how bad, here's how stupid I was here. Bad. I pissed Fox off. They had to pick the show up by midnight on a certain day to go to the upfronts in New York. <laughs> they called me and told me that they weren't picking up the show at like 1115, like 45 minutes left. It was like, let them wait. No, 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 no. Let them wait. No, no. And let, let the tumor really get, 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 get purchase. And then we'll call them. So, uh, so again, so people out there, listen, remember, hey, we want to do this really stupid idea. Hey, it's a good idea. I like that. You know, we're going to try that. Let me sit down with the writers and see if we can figure it out. What my $30 million fuck up? Yeah, $30 million fuck is it about $30 million. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Okay. Tell me what comes to your mind. Okay. Daisy Keach. Genius. Steve Carell. Steve Carell came in and auditioned for Dave and was so funny. It was, he got down to the final, it was him and Zach Ward. And uh, the reason Zach Ward got the job is because Zach and I, for some reason, A, looked a lot alike, but Zach and I did this improv that for, it was moments of magic. It was moments of magic. And by the way, getting Titus would have just, would have fucked up Steve Carell's career. <laughs> So you're welcome, Steve Carell. Dylan McDermott. Uh, great guy. Great guy. Different. Different. Um, uh, one of the coolest guys I've ever hung out with in my life. Jay Leno. Um, just a mensch. Just a, just uh, and one of the best comics I've ever seen. And people don't believe that because of the Tonight Show. Uh, but he the reason Jay got the Tonight Show because he was by far the best comic working. Willie Jello Johnson. <laughs> Yo, man, don't talk about Willie, man. You don't talk about Willie. You don't. You don't bring Willie up. You don't like Willie. Willie is an uh, entity. Willie is always around. Willie like God, <laughs> except uh, he plays rap. You know. Of course, I think God like rap music too. Janine Garofalo. I work with Janine in the in the, in the movie. Um, I like Janine a lot. I, I I was. 
I like Janine. She's a lot sweeter than I thought she was. She's a really good person. I like Janine. Sarah Palin. Uh, you know, someone who doesn't take a joke well. <laughs> I, you know, maybe she doesn't, not that she doesn't take the joke well. Maybe she just didn't get it. What was the joke? I was uh, doing Adam Carroll's podcast. She had said that thing about Paul Revere where she was like, they said, what do you think about, she's in the Paul Revere Museum. And they go, hey, what do you think about Paul Revere? You got anything? Well, he was just great. He was shooting the guns and ringing the bells. And she goes, he was just amazing. Shooting the guns and ringing the bells. So the next day on Adam Kroll's podcast, we're at the Irvine Comedy Club, and I say, you know what? If she's elected vice president or if she ever gets to president, I said, I'm just going to reserve a spot on the grassy knoll, locked and loaded, ready to go. That's what I said. That's all I said. That's all I said. Audience laughs in front of 300 people. Funny joke, right? Funny. Audience, you know why I know it's funny? Because the fucking audience laughed. That's such a joke. Two days later, Bill O'Reilly goes on Fox News and says, well, we have a problem right here. Comedian Christopher Titus has threatened to kill Sarah Palin. All of a sudden, my Twitter blows up. They're like, fuck you, man. You can't threaten to kill somebody. We're going to kill you. What? And, I'm, and so my agent goes, he goes, do you know what happened? I go, no, I don't know what happened. My Twitter's going nuts. And he goes, uh, he goes, well, you did that joke. And so, so, I mean, it was scary. It was scary. The crazy that came across was scary. That's why this new show is, is I, I, I was actually being a pussy about writing this new show about what's happening. And, I, and now I'm not. I've decided that now I'd rather I would rather go all the way and have someone take a shot at me. I hope I survive it because then I'll sell the, that album will sell like crazy. Anyway, so here's what happened. So uh, uh, so I write an apology. I call, I call Bill O'Reilly says, do you want to come on the show? If Christopher Titus is out there, we want him to come on the show and talk about this. Call me a pinhead on TV. So I call my publicist. I go call him. They said, oh, no, no, no. We're fine now. No, we're not going to have him on pussy bill o'reilly's a pussy by the way just want everyone to know that um called him on his shit and he wouldn't have us on so here's what happens next i write an apology i said you know i said i want to put this public apology out this is to sarah palin and her family if you thought that i was serious about causing anyone in your family harm i apologize that is not what i meant at all i'm a stand-up comedian and i and i totally understand you being upset if you thought that but that being said, the reason I said this joke and the reason the audience laughed because because we have a people we as a, we as as Americans have set the bar so low at a possible leader that we would actually even consider Sarah Palin. You don't give the stupid cheerleader the Uzi. <laughs> Sincerely, Christopher Titus. I'm sorry. That's what I learned about the Gale meeting is like, I can't not be me. You know, first of all, no one, like, like people may not like me or may not want to work with me or whatever. I'll get it done anyway. There's too much, there's too many ways to get media out there now. Uh, I've also learned what, what it really costs to produce something. And so I can do it myself now and I can do it and I can, you know, win or lose. I did it how I wanted to do it. And the second you give up your soul for fame, money, whatever, you're just fucked. You're fucked. And you can't walk, you just walk through life feeling like, I just, I can't walk through life like that. There's a lot of people that can exist in this town and be like, yeah, fucking sell that fucking guy. I didn't believe in that shit at all. I said, like I made two million off it. I can't do that. It's got, I got to have passion for it or love for it or it can't get done. Your proudest moment in show business. When I was sitting at the Writers Guild uh, Awards with the crew from Titus and we lost, we lost to Everybody Loves Raymond, but we were in the room. You know, for a guy, for a DF student, and it was a script I'd written, and everyone got mad at me. You know, people got mad. I was like, but I said, did you guys submit your your scripts? And they went, no. None of the writers submitted their scripts. I submitted mine, and I get nominated. And so we're sitting there, and Jack and Brian, and Chris Sheridan, and Patrick Megan, and John Mori, and all these great writers. We had such a great room at Titus, and and sitting with those guys was the proudest moment for me because because there's no evidence that I 
should have been there. No evidence at all. And so that was it, man. And those guys, and those guys, to this day, my biggest regret of losing the show is not the money, although it's a thirty million dollar fuck up. It's not the money. It's that that me smarting off to the network president lost one hundred and fifty people their jobs. And the show was good. The show would have done really well. Your biggest disappointment in show business. Having a TV show that was groundbreaking, pushing the envelope, working, reviews from Rolling Stone to every I, if the Time Magazine were just through the roof, and then, and and just because uh, my high school issues and Gail Berman's high school issues ruined something good. Yep. But by the way, it's not Gail Berman's high school issues. It's 100% Christopher Titus's high school issues. Last question: What advice would you have for the young? comic who has angst issues trying to get started and navigate through the world of not just stand up but creating and writing their own stuff also executive producing and getting to the next level and having the kind of career that you have uh, I would say um, don't try to figure it out don't try to figure it out, man. Just do it. Do what's in your heart because that it, it's it never worked when I tried to figure it out. It never worked when I tried to give them what they wanted. They don't fucking know what they want, and they never have. They don't know. You think you, Breaking Bad was was turned down by how many different stations before it got on? I mean, let's go down the list of brilliant shows that were turned down. Turned down. The person who slaps a risk rock in front of you and then says it's too risky, you shouldn't be running shit. You know. So at the end of the day, you got to do do your passion. And don't give a fuck because even if even if you do your passion with a skateboard and a go cam, you can put it on YouTube. You know that's where everybody that's that's where people don't quite get it yet. You know I started doing my special revolution after revolution. We started shooting our own, and uh, people don't get it. You can be in, you can be in charge of it. There's no gatekeepers anymore, and I and, and that's why the movie got done. There's no gatekeepers. We still have to sell the movie. I still you still have to do good product, but the gatekeepers are gone. So don't worry about the gatekeepers anymore. That's my advice. Don't worry about the gatekeepers do what you want to do Christopher Titus you are a fucking force of the universe I won't be talking to any gatekeepers after this podcast <laughs> thank you so much thanks man I gotta go do a show for the troops I actually am going down to Irving to do a show for the troops right now awesome yeah that's right man see, see how it worked out in and then I helped the disabled and I'm doing the troops and now see you're doing God's work <laughs> I am thanks Barry okay as promised I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week and one of these people will be a lucky winner and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests meet them shake their hand ask them a few questions or else if they're out of town out of state or out of the country we'll skype them in or facetime them or anything like that so they can be there okay let's do it all right landing on mark reichert from Arden Hills, Minnesota. Congratulations, Mark. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. 
All right, we're landing on JM Darby 7250. Five star review on October 18th, 2016, entitled I Love Barry. So funny. All right. I don't even love me. The review reads Great way to spend my day at work. This is so funny, and I love the stories. Keep it coming. Thank you, JM Darby 7250. Congratulations. You are a winner. And as always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley. A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.